And now, an ad from Dad. <clears throat> All right, save money on car insurance when you bundle home and auto with Progressive. Can I take these off? All right. What is this? This looks good. Wow. That's well made. Where did you get this? I'm talking to you with the hair. Yeah, where did you get this? It's good stuff. That's solid. That's not veneer. That's solid stuff. Progressive can't save you from becoming your parents, but we can save you money when you bundle home and auto. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company affiliates and other insurers. Discounts not available in all states or situations. The Big Papa Online Network on Blog Talk Radio is on the air. What is at eye level? A reductio ad absurdum look at the headlines from politics to pop culture, from the corporate to the individual. Every Monday at 6 p.m. Eastern, we take a not-so-serious look at the serious issues of the day. Whether it's politics, economics, social issues, music, or old movies and TV shows, we discuss everything the corporate media overlooks while making you laugh at the absurdity of it all. Hell, you've got to have a sense of humor about life. Just look at the headlines. So join me, Matt G. And me, Doc Savage. Every Monday at 6 p.m. Eastern as we navigate the sea of trolls, talking points, and trickery. We try to figure out a way to be there when tomorrow comes. At eye level, bringing more to you. Only on the Big Papa Network, on Blog Talk Radio. Second official show in the fourth season of Weird Scenes Inside the Goldmine. Your essential guide to all things wild and wonderful in the world of cult entertainment. Drop in for a spell and join me, Doc Savage, and my co-host, Louis Paul, as we discuss the beloved, the hated, the weird, and the wonderful world of cult film, television, and more. So tonight, there is no great genius without some touch of madness, Aristotle once penned, as quoted by Seneca. And in no case does this aphorism greater reply than with respect to the inimitable Klaus Kinski. Famed for his work with the similarly mad Titanic filmmaker Werner Herzog, whose highly amusing relationship with was documented in My Best Fiend, Kinski had spent over a decade working in German Edgar Wallace, Queenies, and Italian and Spanish spaghetti and paella westerns before ever meeting Herzog, and would spend the better part of the next decade starring in ever quirkier, erotica, and U.S. slasher film production. While delivering bizarre spoken word performances where he worked himself into a lather claiming he was Jesus Christ. And then there's All I Need is Love. So join us as we stare into the Nietzschean abyss that is the life and career of Klaus Kinski. Uh, so I am Doc Savage, and with me is my uh, heavily breathing co host, Mr. Lewis Paul. Hello, Lewis. Am I heavily breathing? <laughs> yeah, I heard you breathing there. <laughs> I don't know if everyone uh, else can I have, to, I have to adjust my mic. We, we don't want people to think that. Uh, that's in the spirit of the show. 
<laughs> Sorry about well, that. Well, you know, maybe even if Sleaze Toskansky, you know, heavy breathers, what the hell? <laughs> no, no, it was, it was probably where, where, where my mic was uh, located. Sorry about that. No worries. Trust me, it happens to me up sometimes. Uh, you never know where that damn mic is, you know, because you pick it up and it twists on you. So sometimes it goes like right up your nose practically. And you, you listen back, I'm like, oh my God, was I like having an asthma attack or something? What the hell is this? <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. This is, yeah, no, I understand totally because this reminds me of a day I had to call a, a vendor about something. Uh, and uh, all I heard was. <sighs> Exactly. The microphone picks up if it gets close up like that, and it sounds like you got a problem. It's like I'm fine. Nothing going on here. <laughs> Nothing I know about anyway. So anyway, so with that out of the way, I'm all discombobulated because we uh, well we, we had to run out for something, and then I just got back. <sighs> Wonderful bottle of Menage a Trois here for our next show. Uh, just got back and had a really rush through a really quick dinner inside of 10 minutes. So if I sound like a little bit off for the first couple of minutes, you know what's going on. We actually just packed up as the show started going live. Um, so, yes, uh, if you have not had it, it's, you know, I, I'm a big red wine fan and I really love uh, cabs as a rule. And it's a cheap red wine. I mean, not like dirt cheap, not like Kubok Chuck or something, but, you know, it's uh, the lower end of that sort of thing, or just the everyday daily wine. And I'll tell you, that one and one of the Middle Sisters, there's a couple of different ones they have out there under that, that label, are really good as a rule. I mean, I kind of stick by them. The more ones that I try from all over the place, you know, get them from California, get them from South Africa, get them from Italy, get them from whatever – uh, I tend to really keep going back to those two as my standbys. They're, they're tasty enough. They're not super bitter. There's not that much tannin bite, but they're not overly sweet. And, you know, they got a good kick. So it's, uh, it's worth your money. <laughs> I'm not sure talking to wine salesman. Yeah. So, Klaus Ginski, uh, we had a Edgar Wallace show uh, last year. Oh, geez, a ways back, yes. Last year. Last year. And uh, we discussed we discussed the majority of those, and we left out very little, actually. Yes. And Klaus appeared in a great deal of these movies. Uh, bit parts, uh, red herrings, the such. Uh, right. I think we ended up agreeing. The one that he really had a starring role in, probably one of the best, was... Uh, Creature with the Blue Hand. Yeah, Creature with the Blue Hand. And that's uh, a terrific yeah, little dual role. role. Yeah. Yeah, it's a really good movie, um, and it's certainly it's one of the later ones, so uh, '67, I believe. So yep. it, it's in color, which is really cool, and because uh, most of those were in black and white. Right. Um, uh, yeah. So what I like about it. Oh, I was just going to say, what I liked about it, first off, it was the first of the Edgar Wallace films that I had seen because back in the days of, oh, geez, I think it was like Super Video or one of those. I used to go to all, haunt the, all the mom and pops and the chain stores in our area for videos because in those days, you know, you didn't buy DVDs. As a matter of fact, if you wanted to buy VHS, uh, there was very little worth getting, and the prices were just as high, if not higher, than what you're paying nowadays for a nice Blu ray or whatever. Uh, and most of the good stuff was only you can get it in stores, and they were like rental only. And if you actually tried to order it for, oh, we can get that for you, and it cost like a hundred dollars for a friggin' videotape. Like, get out of here. Uh, 
so basically what you would do is you would haunt the video stores. And if you were smart, there was such a thing called dual taping. And, you know, you'd be able to collection that way. Uh, and so I used to haunt all those stores. I had a couple of friends that did the same thing. Uh, saw a lot of good stuff. But you had to kind of scour. I mean, literally going all over a couple of counties, uh, every single store. Oh, yeah. I had memberships in I don't know how many stores just trying to get, like, oh, this guy's got five you know rarities. So I looked at a couple of Nashy films, and everything was retitled strangely and whatever. So in the course of doing that kind of stuff, uh, this one place, a super video was close to me, had this thing, Creature with a Blue Hand. I'm like, all right, let me give it a shot. Luckily, they didn't have it under that Bloody Dead title because I would never touch that. This looks stupid. Uh, you know, I'm not really a gore hound despite the fact that I love Italian horror. Uh, and nowadays, I'm probably used to it. I probably, like, really do come off like a gore hound. Uh, but it's not my thing. I don't go in there to see somebody's, like, guts get ripped out or whatever. Uh, and, you know, pick this thing up, and I was like – wow, this is really good. And it was when my father was still alive even. So I remember he liked it. My mother was sitting there and watched it. Uh, one of the times we saw it because, you know, it was just, we played this one a lot because we liked it. Uh, she liked it. And I was like, it's just a good film all around. And Klaus gets unusually where he was usually, like I said, he was the, the nervous um, – you know, either Red Herring or one of the fast victims. He's just kind of like some creepy guy standing in the corner looking all scared and gets, you know, knocked off by whoever, the Avenger or the Frog or whoever the killer was that week, the Crimson Monk. Um, he actually got a pretty juicy part uh, as not only the lead, but as a dual lead, as, you know, like the insane brother who may or may not have been going around killing people and as the, you know, more normal brother who, again, you know, you don't know who it is. I want to give away the whole story, but uh, it was pretty for Klaus and especially in the creamies. I think it was his biggest role by far, uh, unless you go to something like Double Face or Freda, but that's, I don't know, is that really a Jalo? I kind of argue against that one. Uh, yeah. you know, he, that's right, they call it a Jalo. It's not even a Jalo, but it's certainly not really a creamy, but some people classify there. It's like, oh, Edgar Wallace had something to do with that. Well, if you say so. <laughs> I don't see it. I, I, and, uh, before, and before then, before then, though, he did he did make appearances because, uh, again, I think that's 67? Yes. Yeah. Uh, before then, he, he made uh, small appearances in a couple of uh, Euro spy movies, which were really popular, mm-hmm. and we also covered those uh, in the show. Uh, about 65, That Man in Istanbul was one of them. Uh, not a great right. big part. Bang Bang, You're Dead actually was a bigger part, and that was a fun movie. Right. Uh, for a few dollars more, he was in uh, Sergio Leone, Clint Eastwood Western. Um, as Juan, uh, his character was hunched back, but I don't like to refer to him that way. It's kind of weird. Um <laughs> And of course, before before Kruger with the blue hand, he was in Doctor Zhivago of all things. So the guy definitely yes, of all things. Now, um, maybe just for a second, we should jump way back because people are like, well, who the hell is this Klauskinski guy? Yeah, yeah. Uh, I wanted to say something that I, if you don't mind, that I touched upon yeah, the other day when we were speaking about Bond movies, and I always thought he would have been a great villain. So Klauskinski yes. is this German actor. Um, from Polish German parentage uh, heritage, and he, um, he had you know struggling life as a young man. You know, uh, yes. family didn't have much, and then and the and the parents trying to make ends meet, bickering. You know, very Germanic families. This pre World War Two, and um, 
he grew to young to become a young man. Very striking features, uh, very unusual looking. And and uh, I'm trying to remember what I said the other day, but um, he, you were talking about him as a replacement for Brandauer in uh, Never Say Never. Yeah, yeah, in Never Say Never. Yeah, right. But no, what I was and you people to get haven't heard that was, yet. You'll hear that in a week right, or so. People uh, haven't heard that yet. But part two um, of the Bond shows. It was interesting. He had these really hard features, hard angular features. You yes. could almost say feline in a way with the eyes. Mm-hmm. And then that mouth with the curled lip, which was the sinister part of him. You know, like if you, if you took, you know, this, this thing, if you just like look at that, look at that, look at that, and then all these things together, very interesting visually uh, young man. And, um, so that was definitely uh, something that got him some roles in the you know bit parts. Uh, uh, I, I I'm been reading. And it's a very big book. I I'm still reading it uh, by uh, Troy Howarth. Uh, it's a book on Kinski films. I mean, sometimes Kinski only appeared like 15 seconds in a movie, but you wind up yeah. really remembering him. Um, sometimes it yeah. was like two, two minutes, but you wound up remembering him. That kind that of says a lot because part of it is you're right. It's partly visual because he is an odd looking fellow. I mean, my first, you know, I tend to anthropomorphize people just automatically. It's, it's by nature. Like, oh yeah, the horse over there, the whooping crane, you know, whatever. I, they, people just kind of look like animals to me if I'm not thinking. It's just something natural I pick up. Uh, you know, nothing like horrible intended by this. Just you know, like a poetic sort of thing. Like, okay, here's here's an artistic way of seeing them. There you go. There's a shorthand. Boom. You look like blank. Uh, unfortunately, I see a lot of cows out there, but that's another story, <laughs> uh, especially lately. Uh, but um, Klaus to me always kind of looked like a frog. Uh, he's got that weird, like his face is kind of squashed down at the bottom, but he's got that large angular like forehead that's uh, actually the guy that originally when I was, I was talking to you about the Robert Vaughn called him a football head um, my father actually invented that term I imagine uh, talking about somebody we knew who had an odd you know jutting forehead like Klaus um, but he's a very odd unusual looker and it's not really a Germanic look I mean there is a sort of decadent old world aristocratic look about him uh, you know, if you see pictures of people, I mean, even going to Italy for uh, who's the fellow that wrote uh, Pleasure uh, as it was retranslated, also known as Trial of Pleasure, uh, Denunzio, Gabriel Denunzio, uh, not as okay, not as uh, classically quote handsome as that, but that sort of a feel, that sort of a vibe, that sort of a look, that sort of a demeanor. He, he affected this out of, uh, just as a person. Um, but the thing about him was. Is he really like you know? Was he ugly? Well, no. He's odd looking. You can't picture him having women gravitate towards him, and yet they do, and they did, and they still do. After his death, you still hear people are like, you know, go Klaus. Yeah. Uh, As a matter of fact, there's a great song from uh, Black Tape for a Blue Girl where they're like enthusing over Klaus. (laughs) I interviewed Sam Rosenthal and asked him about that, and he just made some flippant comment like, "Well, who wouldn't want to be with Klaus?" But you know, it's like half a joke. Uh, But nonetheless, well, I I never uh, thought of him. That way, I never thought of him as ugly or unattractive. What? That's that's not me. I I don't approach people that way. And I just thought 
growing up and seeing him in movies. Who's this unusual looking person? Oh, and yeah, he's definitely like a Fellini like, figure. Yeah, uh, yeah, I could look at that. Yeah, I could see that. Uh, he's actually, so, even though they were Germanic, they were, like you mentioned, a Polish, uh, I don't know if they were Polish descent, but he was definitely living in Danzig, or what became Danzig, uh, and right on the border. So it was kind of questionable, people that lived in that area, uh, whether they're, you know, how much of the, their background is Polish, how much of their background is German. Uh, his father apparently was a flop opera singer. Which fascinated me, and that's probably part of where he gets his um, more artistic, uh, intellectual, aesthetic side from. Because what's interesting about Klaus too is that he always carried himself with an air of, uh, again, like I had mentioned about this failed aristocracy thing, uh, this air of decadence, this air of knowing that there is more to appreciate in life, like an esthete. Um, you know, he would appreciate fine wines and fine art and be able to speak to you for hours about philosophy and, you know, the great books of literature. And yet he could also be down and dirty where in the kind of guy that would be the guy that we've mentioned many times across the show and various shows, uh, anytime Klaus came up, you know, basically he was a money whore. He was like, okay, give me a, a decent paycheck and fly me out to wherever so I can go and, you know, see the sights, fuck a couple of girls, stand there and scowl on camera, maybe say a couple of lines, maybe not. And then go back home, and that was really all. He was like, he was, he was that sort of a. You don't really have people like that nowadays. Even if you have actors that want to be mercenary, they're still doing that. You know, the method acting. Oh, what's my motivation, and how how do I look on screen? And Klaus didn't give a shit. He was just like, give me my paycheck. Well, you know, is there anybody I can go here and get laid? And <laughs> bye. Let me smoke my cigarettes. Let me get out of here. Uh, well, and the other thing was too. The other thing was too. I don't think he knew. Or was no, I don't think he was able to temper his his performance, his acting. Like for example, you know, especially on screen. You know, I, I've never seen him on stage except for the few things where he was speaking in one man shows and we'll get to that later. But as far as uh, acting in a role, uh, per se, uh, I've not seen that but I I I saw enough snippets of uh, comments from people who directed him and worked with him that the conclusion was that te- Klaus was just never able to to even temper what when he was performing. Like, you know, when, when you're doing something, you come down and you alternate your rhythms to to uh, fit part and fit the lines. Right. He just wasn't able to do that, but that made him him. You know. That made him yep. him, and, and any Klaus Kinski role just goes into another universe. You know, it's just like another thing. That's what makes him different. And there's also, for, well, just jumping ahead to what I want to say at the end, really, is that Klaus is actually probably, if you want to call it that way, because, again, there's arguments about do you call it actor, do you call it persona, you know, a character. But oh, yeah. Klaus is my favorite actor, and he always has been. There's nobody else. I don't even think of anybody else. Like, okay, who do you really like? Well, okay, this girl's pretty. This guy, I liked him in a couple of roles. I like his persona. But you know, who's your favorite actor? Klaus Kinski, no question. And you know, it's 
yeah, and, and what it is is, like you were mentioning, and again, jumping ahead here, but uh, what he puts across on screen, he could stand there and be silent and just do something with his eyebrows or his eyes, which are filled with this mixture of actual madness, because he, I'll get to that in a second, uh, and you know whatever it is, this rage that he's got inside him and his you know decadent esthete sort of thing. Uh, and he'll still make a bigger impact, like you had mentioned earlier, than anybody else in the cast. Even if they're people you like and know and respect, he's in a movie with Christopher Lee, and you barely know this fucking Christopher Lee's there. You know, usually that guy overpowers everybody. No, with Klaus in the room, he's like, you know, Klaus is a bit part there practically in the Count Dracula for Franco. And who are you watching? You get the movie for, for Franco, and okay, you say uh, for Franco for uh, Kinski. And say, so, okay, well, Soledad Miranda's in there. I love Soledad Miranda. Once again, another presence. I don't even notice her in that movie. She wasn't really herself. We talked about that in, uh, I believe, the first of the three Franco shows we did. Uh, so the, who comes across in that Maria movie? Ross, too. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, another one. Um, and also, when he actually does buckle down and get a few lines and throw himself into a part, which he always does if he gets three seconds, because even just standing there, he's going to give you something. Uh, I've seen some Westerns and spaghetti westerns where it's practically existential because he's just there staring off into the distance or staring at the camera kind of blankly. And yet he, you still get the sense that there's – you want to pay attention to him more than anybody else there, which is ridiculous. You know, and they'll bill him in films like, oh, look, Klaus Kinski, you know, top build on the cast. He's in there for you know, two minutes, five minutes, and, and that's it. And that's what they're selling it on. They knew that this guy had this sort of a presence and this sort of a, a gravitas. Um, but the thing is, I mentioned about his madness. He actually was crazy. There's no two ways about it. He actually, um, if you go back to 1950, he was in a nut house uh, because uh, and he was stalking somebody that he was hot for or whatever the hell. But the bottom line was they diagnosed him and said, yeah, well, uh, I think he's kind of schizophrenic, but they didn't really knock it down. This is in the, I think, the early 50s or something. Uh, they didn't actually like, okay, put him on Thorazine and lock him up. It was like, well, you know, he might be on a schizophrenogenic spectrum, but, you know, there's other issues going on here, and we'll see what happens. And, then, of course, nothing ever happened. He just went and made the films and then started doing things towards the end where, you know, he was going around saying he was Jesus Christ and stuff, <laughs> freaking out at audiences and flipping out in cameras and trying to strangle uh Werner Herzog and all sorts of other things that you see happening and that are part of his lore and legend. Uh, but there's no question that in the middle of his genius, which was – it was a genius for sure uh, because he was a very good uh, – taking method acting to its extreme, to be honest with you. Uh, and also a presence, and also an SD, and all. He wasn't just like, okay, he's nuts and sitting in the corner going, blah, 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 I'm Christ. Yeah, he actually is Klaus Kinsey, the Klaus Kinsey you see in these things that people give a damn about. And yet, he was schizophrenic. There's no question. Uh, yeah, so, I mean, you, know, you, you mentioned method acting, and the the the, the places someone would go. I mean, early De Niro is is very close. Oh, yes. Yeah. Uh, I mean, early to the early, you know, yes, Robert De Niro people, uh, say what you will, but there's some amazing stuff there. And look at Taxi Driver, look at Raging Bull, which yep. is absolutely shocking performance. Absolutely shocking. Yep. Not a favorite movie of mine. I find it very distasteful. I find it very dark. Yes, I am speaking that way, but. It's a hard movie <laughs> to watch. 
They really yeah, I'm not a fan of it. And uh but that performance? Wow. And physically yeah. how he changed himself. Uh so yeah, there's there's a couple of people to do that, but not on the level of Klaus. Not that yeah, Klaus exactly. could go to to these kinds of When you're going on that game. level. Right. But let me jump and hold your thought for a second. But when you're talking about method actors like that, you know, there's a couple of people that always pop to mind. De Niro being one, uh, Al Pacino, especially at a certain period of his career, before yeah. he got into like Son of a Woman and all that. Uh, Marlon Brando, before he became sort of yes. a joke. And Jimmy Dean, who actually was so far into method, he wound up basically killing himself. Uh, whatever you want to say about how he died, you know, nonetheless, he was more or less suicidal. And there are a lot yeah, of yeah. stories about they being suicidal throughout. Uh, you know, method acting pulls out it pulls out a lot of bad things in people because they really throw them. So you know who was like a real method actress or tried to be? Marilyn Monroe, and everybody knows she was nuts. She was also schizophrenic. Uh, there's something about the style that says go beyond you know being like Clark Gable, get in there, hit your marks, and get out. Uh, which you know there's nothing wrong with that if you're a personality like Gable and you have that sort of gravitas, but. It doesn't work for a lot of people. It doesn't work for like a Tom Yule or somebody like that. So you know, when Strasburg came out with the method, a lot of people gravitated towards it, and it goes over the top because you get people that really kind of fall into roles. Even schmucks like Val Kilmer walking around thinking he's Jim Morrison after doing the doors. I mean that's a little ridiculous. Uh, and, oh, we couldn't approach him on set because he was in character. Get out of here. So it does – push people towards this and it attracts people who are like Klaus or like Marilyn Monroe who are kind of fragile in the first place or to be honest with you even though it's kind of a joke Nicolas Cage another schizophrenic who's been in and out of nut houses uh, and a method actor uh, but none of them really approach Klaus where he went uh, uh, where he was I, gravitas it's, it's very very different and, and, and I actually have two cents to say about Nicolas Cage I haven't given up on him yet uh, really? I, know <laughs> I like him people. but you know, he's a joke I, I like him, but I haven't given up on him. And I wouldn't call him a joke, I would say, personally, because I would say he's having some problems now. And, and he's trying to, um, I mean, it's pretty recent that for, was a Herzog of all people? Um, mm-hmm. That that Nicolas Cage did a terrific performance. So, you know, it, all things are possible. And uh, he's done so many very weird, strange movies, some very bad oh, movies. Oh, yeah. He's done some interesting yes. things for Paul Schrader recently. So he's just he's another guy who has uh mental problems. Uh exactly. Difficulties and uh, money problems too, but he tries. <laughs> I think I think I think he tries and and he should just let it flow. Which is the thing with Klaus Kinski too. He he didn't try. He just was he was exactly. himself? He just fit into parts. Like, for example, a movie I really like, which doesn't get enough press, which is Grand Slam, a really pretty cool high oh, school. Oh, I love that. Sixty-seven. Yep. Yeah, mm-hmm. with uh, Janet Lee, who sometimes like, oh, Janet Lee's hot, and sometimes they're like, oh, here she plays this kind of. Well, I don't want to give it away. This is a very tough movie to discuss because you wind up giving things away. But just to say yep. that. Ever G. Robinson is this aged uh yes, that Ever G. Robinson is an aged yep. uh uh gentleman who has this scheme 
to do a very elaborate kind of top cappy thing uh, to to get these characters together to do this robbery. And Klaus is one of the people. He plays Eric Weiss, yep. and uh, just interesting real real German name there, right? And, yeah. And Eric Weiss is another tinderbox, you know, put a match to him, he will just burn up kind of character there. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, he's, he's loaded, ready to snap. He doesn't get yep. along with many people, but he does have a couple of moments of, let's say, less ruth, ruth, ruthfulness, ruthlessness to him. Uh, it's a very interesting yes. movie. Uh, it ends rather bittersweet for the majority of the cast. But, yeah, I really like that. It's one of his standout parts amidst the appearing and things like Mm-hmm. No, I was going to say, because you just brought up the point, I actually think that that is one of his more sympathetic roles because, as you mentioned, yeah. it was very nuanced. I mean, he wasn't just, you know, the the grandstanding Klaus, you know, baddie that he can often be. Uh, he also was caring and uh, strangely tender at points. Uh, you could tell that he was kind of worried about, I think it might have been Margaret Lee. Um, you know, and there's big names that are, you know, tend to once again overshadow people that are in a movie with them. Adolfo Celli's in the damn thing. Edward G. Robinson, for God's sakes. And yet you're not paying attention to them. You're paying attention to Klaus through the whole thing. And, you know, at the end, you're kind of like, at the very least, you feel sorry for him. He, he comes off as the effective hero of the film, which is really interesting. And, you know, this is a heist film. It's a, it was made in the wake of things like Top Cappy, like you said, but I think it blows that film away as much as that film is decent. You know, there's no acknowledgement that it isn't, but Grand Slam is better. So, but. Yeah, then he, then, you know, and surrounding us, he was like in the Ruthless Four, and if you meet Sartana, pray for your death. You know, very popular. Toward the end of the gangster, uh, and toward the end of the Euro Western, you know, that whole. He was just. My God, how many movies did he make in 68? It does a lot. Each year, that kind of thing, you know? Um. um yeah, I mean, if you want to just here? Oh, jump on there. Double Face. We probably should spend a few minutes on Double Face, I presume. Yes, definitely. I was going to say, you have... Yeah. Well, no, mm-hmm. yeah, going back a little bit, because you had shot through some of these, and, you know, they're just worth rattling off some of them. Uh, you had mentioned Dr. Shivago. You mentioned that man in Istanbul. One that never gets mentioned, but is on a Blu-ray, especially if you have, uh, you know, the all-region jobs, but I think you can still get it over here without worrying about it, uh, is The Pleasure Girls. I think uh, BFI had released this recently. Uh, oh, yeah, it's a typical movie, English movie. Yeah, I mean, it's almost a kitchen sink drama of the uh, mid-60s, but not quite because it's also a bit swinging London. Uh, there are moments of, if not comedy, then certainly, you know, that sort of a vibe with like, yo, here's Dolly Birds and uh, hanging around with uh, rockers and mods and whatever the hell else. And interesting cast because Francesca Annis is in it, who was in, first off, she was super hot back in those days, but she was in a lot of uh, British character roles in films and eventually wound up as Tuppence on uh, – the uh, what, what the hell they call that partners in crime the BBC uh, series there the Christie thing from early on in the uh, late 1980s uh, Annika Wills was in it who was in a whole bunch of things uh, I don't know she was in like Strange Report and things like that but she wound up on Doctor Who as Polly for a couple of uh, seasons there um, Rosemary Nichols is in the thing who was in at the very least uh, 
was it Department S, one of the things she was in? Uh, she was in a couple of things so. around that time. Um, you know, again, Dolly Bird, they, they try to play her up when she was in English Rose and all prem and shit. You know, but really, she was basically just one of those Dolly Bird types. Uh, Susanna Lee, you know, Hammerstar. Uh, Ian McShane is in the film, which is interesting. Yeah. You know, the, the future Lovejoy, if nothing else, if you don't know him from five billion other roles, uh, including the Three Musketeers and Four Musketeers things. And there's Klaus Kinski in the middle of it. Uh, I think, if I remember properly, Kinski was uh, kind of a city slicker, not spoken, but possibly you know drug dealer type, uh, who was trying to, you know, basically, uh, what do you want to call it? Impress one of the girls and lead her on into ways of sin or you know nothing serious. He just probably just want to screw her. But yeah, you know, that's that's the way the film looked at it because it's kind of one of those conservatives kitchen sink jobs. Uh, what, what I but, what I remember about this. This movie was, uh, it began that way, and he actually started, you got the feeling his character actually started to like her, and so yes. felt remorse, which then makes this movie a rather tricky movie, you know, because then it starts to get very complicated, and these kind of things, for these kind of movies to get complicated like that, it, it, it really is not good. <laughs> it's true. They're, no, they're really there for titillation. Yeah, because you, know, you described pretty well what kind of picture it was, you know. And actually, there's some fleeting nudity, nudity for the time '65. Yes. Um, and so to have that character do that has you have to totally change your opinion of that character. But the movie starts to change. It's like it becomes more injected with more drama. Yeah, you know, and and it, it just it's a tough pick. That's but probably yeah, a lot of uh, yeah. British films of that era. Yeah, a lot of the things we even discussed under the Slap and Tickle show. I mean, not that many. I tried to keep it to the ones that actually were sex comedies, but there are things that they will label under that. Like, oh look, it's a British Slap and Tickle film, and it'll be something like The Pleasure Girls. And like, okay, it starts off and he feels like one, and then oh, that got ugly. I didn't like that at all. I didn't like where that went. I saw one recently with Susan George, a very young Susan George, uh, and again, it turns into this kitchen sink melodrama about you know her scummy boyfriend, how he can't get out of the council flats. I'm like. The hell? What happened to this movie? It was great for the first twenty minutes, uh, so you get a lot of those those kind of problems with those films. Uh, so you know, for a few dollars more, you had mentioned uh, again just a bit part as Indio in that thing. But who do you remember? Okay, yes, uh, you know it's a great film for sure. You know, it's a it's a Leone film. You've got Clint Eastwood at his most you know quote iconic. I hate that word, but nonetheless, uh, you get the idea. And you've got Lee Van Cleef, of course. So, you know, you're paying attention to all of them. But Klaus really kind of chews the scenery in the couple of minutes he's on. And he's so twitchy. So you almost get the impression that he knew that he wasn't going to steal the show this time, even though he's one of the most, you know, gravitating. For, for the time, the amount of screen time he's there, yeah, he does steal the show. But. You know, considering the rest of the film and all the big names that are in there and how well they're carrying themselves, you get the feeling he was kind of pissed off at them, <laughs> or maybe pissed off at Leone, because he seems particularly violent in this one, more so than in most of his films until you get stuff like, you know, Carl Bavardi or whatever, which is a lot later in his career. Um, well, it's really interesting, too, to see him uh, share scenes with Lee Van Cleef. Uh, one of the only, if not the only times they did this. Um, because Lee Van Cleef is another interesting guy, naturalistic actor. Um, and after, he was around in the 50s, uh, 
It's a Harryhausen picture. He's in uh, The Beast from 20,000 Fathoms. Um, right. So he took some time off. I guess he couldn't hack it. Uh, he tried. And then he kind of edged his way back. And then he got this big part in this movie. And they, they do him, uh, Lee Van Cleef and Kinski share a couple scenes together. It's great to see them together. Yep. Lee Van Cleef is funny, too, because at the end of his career, after so many years of, you know, basically being the spaghetti western tough guy, and he, you know, parlayed that into future roles that where he was by himself, like God's Gun or something, even silly like that, uh, it kind of fell apart again. And he wound up doing uh, The Octagon with Chuck Norris, and that parlayed him into one of his greatest or worst, depending on how you look at it, roles, which was The Master with Timothy Van Patten, Salami from The White Shadow. Hilarious show. Somebody out there, if you're listening, put it out on disc. I, I really want that series. It's been sporadic, like an episode or two floating around public domain. Obviously, I've seen those, but uh, I haven't seen it since 1984, I think it was. Hilarious show. Um, so anyway... Uh, it's, it's like the Shazam TV series from the 70s, but updated for the 80s and given a little bit more primetime uh, gravitas, I guess, if you want to call it that. Um, so Circus of Fear is another one he pops up in, which is uh, one of those Harry Allen Towers jobs, uh, which, again, some people call it an Edgar Wallace film. Well, is it really? I don't know. Uh, they do have a couple of the people from the Creamies in it. You know, we mentioned this during uh, the Creamy show because you got Hans Draka, Eddie Arendt, Margaret Lee. And yet you've also got Christopher Lee and Leo Gannon and Susie Kendall. Uh, Alfred Vora directed it, yes. Uh, and, of course, Klaus is in this as well as you know, one, of the, uh, one of the red herrings, I guess. Uh, definitely a decent film, uh, certainly for British horror of its period. Uh, it works very well. But, you know, my wife, who loved all the creamies, did not like it because they felt too British for her. Because there's like a nasty vibe to the British films that uh, doesn't play out in the German ones. Uh, so then, of course, like you mentioned, several spaghetti westerns. A couple that are worth pulling out would be A Bullet for the General, which, which was done by uh, one of my favorite uh, Italian crime uh, social social issues directors of Italy, uh, Damiano Damiani, uh, with his favorite person, Jean-Marie Volante, in it. And Martin Beswick, Luke Castell, Otto Sombrell, William Berger, Salvatore Borghese, your favorite. Uh, you know, there's people in this that are worth uh, you know noting. And, you know, for a paella western, it's certainly one of the best, if not the best. Uh, it's up there with that one that Ernest Borgnine did, uh, for sure. Um, Million Eyes of Sumeru. We were going to 67 when you told me I didn't do five million movies. Alongside with Christian of Blue Hand, he's doing this one and Five Golden Dragons. Once again, a couple more for uh, Harry Allen Towers. Uh, I believe both of them have Maria Rome in it, which makes sense since she was married to Harry. Um Margaret Lee pops up in Five Golden Dragons. Uh, Brian Dunleavy, who was Quatermass, pops up in that one as well. Uh, the other one has, of all people, Frankie Avalon and George Nader, who I don't think we actually got to discussing this one. We kind of got cut off. Uh, but in one of those shows, possibly the Creamy show, possibly the Spy Film show, uh, we were talking a bit about uh, the uh, Jerry Cotton Jerry films. Cotton. Uh, yeah, which we yeah. never did get around to cover. Uh, we'll have to do that, yeah. Uh, we'll have to do that. But, you know, very, very impressed with those things. Yeah. And these two films are almost companion pieces. Uh, Sumeru, for those who uh, don't know, was a Sex Romer character. It was the, the female equivalent of uh, Fu Manchu, and which was also his character. 
And this film was actually followed up by Jess Franco, picked up with Paris to do uh, What the Hell Is That? That Girl from Rio was the sequel to this film. Um, arguable which one's better, which one's worse. They're very different styles. Uh, Five oh, Golden uh, Dragons. I like, I like, I like uh, uh, That Girl from Rio or Rio 70 or Sumeru or whatever the hell it's called because it's so bizarre. But this one does feature Klaus as President Bong. Who's uh, yep. <laughs> nearly salivating? Um, uh, um, sex maniac. <laughs> yeah, was Playing this the one where you were kind of wondering if he was gay? Too, which is confusing. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It was. It's hilarious because he's got all these women around. He's supposed to be like a, I guess a pasha or a raja. Uh, but he's obviously white, but you know that sort of a thing. And part of his, you know, harem stuff, all that. And nonetheless, he plays it like I said; it's extremely fay. And you're standing there wondering more than, say, Jason King, who actually was gay. Uh, you're like, wow, okay, this is kind of obvious. <laughs> but you know, it's nonetheless, it's really likable, and it's and unusually for Klaus, a comic role. He's definitely playing it for comedy. There's no two ways about it. Um, but I definitely enjoyed that for that. Uh, and, you know, Five Golden Dragons was very similar, just a little bit more of a, what do you want to call it, uh, mystery in the sense that sex romer things are mysteries, you know. Uh, oh, look, here's all this intrigue going on, almost a spy thing. But. Yeah, it's almost a spy thing, yeah. And, again, you get strange people in the bit parts here because, uh, you know, Christopher Lee's in it. George Raft is in it. Maria Pershy from the Spanish Horrors. I'm like, you know, he would Brian pull an Thomas. international cast. Yeah. Yep. So, uh you mentioned Grand Slam already. It's no point talking about that one. So he's still doing Eurospy at this point. We're getting close to the the point where he's going to start doing less of the spaghetti westerns and uh, certainly less of Eurospies. He's he's definitely dropped out of the uh, German creamies at this point. Uh, he does Copland saves his skin, which I haven't seen that one, but we I did see him. We talked about it in the Eurospy show. Uh, Copland mm-hmm. Frontlo which is the spy I love. Uh, you know, interesting, a little bit more gritty, a little bit more French crime film than Spy, but still pretty good. This one I have not seen. I know that uh, same actors in it, Claudio Brook, Margaret Lee's in it once again, Jean Servais, uh, and Klaus. So, and it's a Denis Lee film, uh, those of you who were our Franco fans. Um, let's see what else we got here. Uh, if you meet Sartana, pray for your death. So he's in one of the Sartana films with uh, Johnny Garco. Uh, and, of course, Fernando Sancho, the ubiquitous. And he's playing, well, not against, but uh, what you call it? Uh, William Berger's in this one as well. So you've got a, definitely an interesting cast of blue-eyed, um, sort of Germanic uh, <laughs> you know, cowboys going up against each other. Uh, and, of course, Salvatore Borghese again. Uh, it's got a Piero, Piero Piccioni score, which is always kind of funky. And uh, I always like this stuff. It's more upbeat than the other guys. Uh, lots more shakes and things like that. Um, and The Great Silence, which is probably, other than Leone, probably considered, in terms of if you go by critics, to be uh, his greatest Western. Uh, and he's got more of a role in it. Uh, it's, it's a strange run from Corbucci. Uh, with Jean-Luc Trampagnon as the lead of all people, who doesn't speak. You know, he's like a mute. Uh, Vanetta McGee is in this thing, which is strange, you know, black exploitation star. Uh, and she kind of plays a... Eh, she takes uh, this guy's silence in and becomes the girlfriend for a while until you know, she gets killed off from so bad end. And uh, Klaus is the bounty hunter going after him 
throughout this. And there's like odd, there's a, there's a big use of snow, which really made this film stand out. Um, you don't really see that in, you know, because we always filmed over in uh, Spain. And it was like, you know, whatever, hell, 100 degrees all freaking time out in the desert. Uh, so they always look like super sweaty. All these films, they're known for that. They look, oh, everybody looks really dirty. Everything looks hot and sweaty, and there's a lot of dust clouds and you know sun beating down. Well, here you are. It's a film that's totally set in the snow, uh, and it's part of its atmosphere and aesthetic. It's you know it's a spaghetti western. It's grim and gritty, but uh, I don't know what else there is to say about that one. Um, and then we get on. Good. It's funny. I never liked the Great Silence. I like a lot of Kerbucci's work. Uh, My wife hated it, and she was watching a lot of spaghetti westerns with me. You know, not like I, I can't say she's a spaghetti western fan, but that one in particular, she did not like it. They had an ugly uh, vibe to it. Tried to mention. I, I, um, I wouldn't. I wouldn't put my distaste for that film on par with what's that one where. They're on the run, and all these characters end up killing each other in the desert. Oh, oh is that you're not talking about the one that uh, Code Red put out, the Cutthroat's Nine? Is that yeah, yeah, it's not on the par with that. As far as with the with the Fulci one, uh, what the hell was that one? Um, where the guy's picked <coughs> the sheriff's door through his heart? Uh, yeah, what's name of time? Is it that? No, not Massacre Time. That was the crappy one, the, the better one. Um, oh, whatever geez. one. Yeah, we but talked the, about the, the culture shit before. Yeah, but the, the, the Great Silence is one that I never warmed to for some reason. Yeah. Um, so now he starts doing – okay, he oh, – I don't know if he already did one for Franco or not, but at this point he decides to do Justine for Franco, which is probably one of the strangest films that Franco did, uh, especially during these periods. Uh, other than Virgin Report, which was his uh, thrown back into the past, odd side take on the uh, the Hausfrau and uh, Schoolgirl Report films that were popular in Germany at the time, uh, this one here stands out as like a weird, I don't know, almost like comedy, and it's based on Sod, and you, you can tell the story is there. It's just the way that it's done is so weird and jokey. It's it's not as bad as the um, uh, Russ Meyer uh, Fanny Hill which was just atrocious. It was like a TV sitcom. But the same kind of goofy, ha, 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 isn't this funny that people are running around getting raped? <laughs> you know, and everybody's a pervert and trying to screw you over. Uh, even the priest, ha, 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 and look, the, the mayor too. Uh, you know, it's sad, but sad was always uh, philosophical and dark and serious and oversexed. This really is none of those, which is strange. I don't understand it. Never liked this film, really. Uh, it's got some beautiful locations. Uh, it's definitely filmed nicely. Uh, it's one of those Harry Allen Towers jobs with uh, Franco. And, uh, of course, that means Renier Rome's in it. But Klaus is in it. Mercedes McCambridge is in it. Uh, Horace Frank shows up. Sylvia Kashina. Howard Vernon, of course. Jack Palance. Palance. Uh, Rosalba Neri. Uh, Gerard Titchy. Luis Seguez. You know, you've got a decent cast, well, well, but... Most of Klaus's screen time is sitting in a cell. You know? Yes. Sitting in the cell, the, with, staring, and, and occasionally writing. <laughs> He's writing his yeah, memoirs. Yeah, occasionally writing with that, with that flowery white wig that we... Yes. That we <laughs> like a George Washington we, wig. <laughs> the George Washington wig we've seen often used in, in uh, period pieces uh, around that time. But... Uh, yeah, he's not well used in that. And uh not at all. Jack Palance really just who's in the same movie really just makes everything go crazy. 
But yeah, so they don't share any scenes, though. Yeah, I, I could have just imagined if Jack Palance and Klaus Kinski had shared scenes. It would have yeah, been really Jack's something. already chewing up the scenery, so if you put Klaus in with him, forget it. But Klaus was, you know, like you said, he's barely in it, so he's strangely subdued. Uh, it, it doesn't feel like he should have even been tapped for this one. Um, I read something somewhere where I doubt the truthfulness of this, that he was unaware of what the rest of the movie really was about. And so so his role, much like Count Dracula, uh, his role is Renfield. Right. Um, There's a similar story about that because he really wouldn't have done them if he knew what they were about. So (laughs) they kind of show his stuff separately. I don't know if that's true. A lot of that. I don't buy it. But I will say that. Franco was known for doing stuff like that to people and just kind of, you know, especially with Klaus, you know, okay, I got you here today by yourself. Fine. I'll just film you in, in a room by yourself here. Just like make some funny faces and emote a little bit right in that pad. There you go. You're done. And then you hear your rent field. Okay. Sit in that cell and stare out the window. Okay. There you go. You're done. So it's very possible that, you know, I won't say he didn't know what was going on the rest of the film. I doubt that. He, I'm sure he got more than just his sides, but, uh, Nonetheless, because uh, these are kind of you know recognized stories, especially as a being a, a cultured esthete type that he aspires to be and acts comes off as, uh, I'm sure he would have known the source material and everything else. But was he acting with other people in these films? Did he see everybody else's performance? Did he know how to – if he was going to measure himself to their uh, acting levels or whatever, which he doesn't do anyway, uh, no, he, he definitely was by himself in both of these movies, uh, But which is why they don't work. Neither one of them really works. Um, I, I think you had mentioned Double Face, and you wanted to get to that. Uh, it's a Ricardo Freda. Uh, actually, interestingly, they claim that Fulci uh, worked on the script uh, for this one. Um, again, they're claiming it's an Edgar Wallace. I don't really buy it, but whatever. Uh, and it's Kinski and Margaret Lee and this other girl, Christiane Kruger. Um, and it involves, you know, again, not trying to get too much of this stuff away. And they're all, it feels more like a half-assed Jalo that this sort of half-romanticized Jalo that uh, what's-her-face Carol Baker was always in, but without the woman in peril thing. It was more of like, oh, look, I thought I knew my wife, but she was really kind of a slut, and she ran off to all these hippie parties and wound up in stag films, and I didn't really know her all along, and then she had a lesbian affair, and what's really going on? Do I know you at all? And I'm, I'm falling in love with this other woman because my wife is dead, but no, wait, she's not really dead. And It's one of those kind of twists and turns, but very cheesy and Almost if the subject matter wasn't quite as, eh, I want to say distasteful, but questionable as it is, more male-oriented as it is, you would think this was like a Lifetime movie. It's very feminine in that respect. It's, it's, a, it's a melodrama. Um, what, what did you think about this one? I actually think he's really good in it, actually. It's, uh, uh, it's, it's for him, it's, it's a pretty good performance. It's measured because... Uh, Faced with the possibility of uh, being accused of the murder that he didn't commit, and right. then uh, resumption that if he did commit the murder, which we kind of believe he didn't, but he had somebody now. But it's like who is this person that, that's in his? You now it's very interesting. It's probably one of the better Ricardo Freda, a person we we discussed this a long time ago. Uh, person, I think, is way overrated. 
one of the Ricardo Freda movies. Uh, yeah, yeah, I, I, I like this movie. It's not a great movie. It's not something you're going to watch often. It, too, has been overrated. But, um, yeah. It's 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 an enjoyable, and it's hard to pigeonhole because uh, it's not really Jallo. It's definitely not a Krimi. It's it's pacing keeps it really from being far. Um, yep. It's it's late sixties interjection of sexual elements. Um, <laughs> So, I mean, there's a lot going on there. It's an interesting movie. I can't leave it at that. Yeah, and Klaus is fine. And I have no problem with him. It's just the, the yeah, type of fine. film that is. Freda, it, it actually, you mentioned that too, and I'm glad you said that because he's a problematic director. Everybody loves him for Horrible Dr. Hitchcock. Uh, a lot of people love him for The Ghost. Per, you know, This film is also uh, quite celebrated, and none of them really deserve it. I mean, yes – they are all Italian gothics in one extent or another, especially the earlier ones. But they don't stand up to other, you know, often considered lesser ones of the same period. Uh, certainly not to like stuff like Mario Baba's gothics. Uh, you know, even stuff like Terror Creatures from the Grave is a lot more atmospheric and dark, and um, it feels more gothic than something like Dr. Hitchcock, which feels more like Rebecca or Jane Eyre. I mean, yes, in that mm. respect, it is gothic literature, correct. But it just, I don't know, there's something missing there. For somebody that once famously uh, took an actress who was basically being bitchy and left her chained up on tea break while she was screaming away, <laughs> they all went off the tea and left her there, uh, you would think that he would be a different, more you know, manly, whatever kind of director, but his stuff is very, like I said, it's like for the Lifetime Network. It's that kind of a feel. It's very flowing and soft and feminine. And I don't know. I mean, the only film of Ricardo Freitas that I really liked was his last one, which I believe was Murder Obsession with uh, Laura Gensler. Yeah. That, that's a good gothic. But his other ones, eh. Um, so anyway, back to Franco now. He goes to do Venus and Furs. I mean, they, they might have all been back-to-back now on Franco. Uh, or at the same time, you know. Uh, which is, you know, we talked about this during one of the Franco shows, obviously. Uh, James Darren, you know, hallucinating about his dead lover or whatever. Well, I like this movie a lot. You know, am I really a ghost? You know, it, it's bizarre. Uh, interesting film, for sure. Uh, Klaus is in it. I don't know. What do you think Klaus had a big part in this? Yeah, he was there. It wasn't like a five-minute job. He would pop up again and again, but not really doing that much, in my opinion. So, uh, Anything else you want to say about that one, or just go on? Oh, it's a great movie. It's a great movie, and that class is in it. makes it even cooler. Uh, Dennis Price is in it. Uh, who's, who's the woman? Barbara McNair, right? And, uh, uh, yes. James, and James Darren does a really fine job, of all people. I mean, time tunnel guy. Um, mm-hmm. And wasn't he on DJ Hooker later? Possibly. I think um, he was. <laughs> oh, look at that. How did I make that connection? Very scary in my head. <laughs> um, so, I really like this movie. Um, it's a very strange... It's probably one of Franco's best. If you had ten really? best Franco movies, I would definitely holy put shit. it within Franco's ten best. Yeah, holy shit. I, would. I wouldn't even put it in the top 50. Uh, <laughs> I like it, but, you know, not that much. Uh, wow. No, I do. But 
That being said, you don't you remember Klaus in this film from smoking cigarettes and looking yep. disdainfully displeased, and that was pretty much his role in this film. Um, yep. And where where are we going after this one? There's a bunch of pictures between oh, us and Dragon. There is. Actually, uh, so you mentioned T.J. Hooker. The only thing I think of with that show, other than Shatner's bad wig and the fact that he's putting on the paunch finally, is that my grandmother was totally hot for him during this show, which made my entire family laugh. Like, really? Shatner? <laughs> Shatner with a bad wig. Uh, but Sartana the Gravedigger, obviously he does another Sartana film, um, and God t- said the Cane, uh, which That's was, I think, more of a... Yeah, so Margarita, he takes a bigger role in this one. Um, actually, you know who's in it besides Peter Carston, which is interesting, and Luciano Pagazzi, uh, the guy who was basically the Peter Laurie of Italy, um, shows up in a lot of stuff, Baron Blood and things like that, uh, is G- Gina's more popular brother, Guido Lola Bridget. I don't know who the fuck he is, <laughs> Guido Lola Bridget. Oh, he was <laughs> in a couple of your old spy films. Was he? Okay. Yeah, yeah he uh, was. He was. He's a, dark, he's a swarthy-looking. But yeah, if I recall properly, because it's been a bit since seeing this one, uh, it was one of the more I don't want to say horror westerns, but it was dark. Uh, it felt like kind of like the, the Stranger's Return, uh, that that sort of a uh, uh, vibe to it. Uh, or more, even, more or even uh, High Plains Drifter, yeah, that kind of thing. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so yeah, he popped up in a couple of Don Siegel probably actually stole from a couple of spaghetti westerns some ideas. <laughs> oh, sure. He did pop up a couple of war films around now. Actually, the two of them are on a double feature I just saw recently. Uh, war Fever, also known as Salt in the Wound, and Churchill's Leopards. But yeah, he, he's not really in them enough to justify it. He's top build. Um, one of them is a Tanina Ricci, the other guy's some guy, Mauricio Prado. Uh, one has got George Hilton in it, which I think was Salt in the Wound. Uh, and the other one had Frank Branya, and Giacomo Rossi Stewart, and Helga Linné in it, of all people, and Richard Harrison. Um, that one may have been the lesser one, actually. He's standing around as a, he's basically a Nazi commandant, and all he does is pop up every so often. I guess the equivalent of inspecting his house, how's everything going okay? He's got the little um, Tipperillo cigarette with the uh, with the holder, uh, and pretty much, I don't think he had a monocle, but it was the same idea, you know, the scar and all that jazz. Uh, shows up in SS gear, basically, and walks out, and that's it. Uh, salt in the Wound was better because he was there with George Hilton, and they were escapees, basically. Uh, they were they weren't deserters, but you know he was off like screwing his girlfriend or whatever. So the military wanted to you know put him on trial. Oh, you're you're gonna die now because you were a, a traitor, a deserter, or whatever the hell, because you were busy screwing your girlfriend instead of you know doing KP duty or whatever bullshit. I hate the military for that. <laughs> that kind of stuff's ridiculous to me. Uh, but, but this is an interesting movie because you got these guys who are. Uh, they're colored in the gray area. There's three of them, actually, and there's the African-American. Yes. And they have dark things to them. Kinski's character likes money, likes jewelry, likes flashy shit. He's a thief. Yep. Also. Yep. And um, they end up with this town that's been besieged. I think it's a French town? Uh, one of those kind of things. Yeah. And they are treated as if, oh, that means that the Americans here are behind you guys. Sure. Yeah, the, yep. the invasion's coming. And so they're treated like kings, these guys. 
And then, at first, the reason why I said it's an interesting movie, for the kind of picture it is, at first, these guys are like, oh, i got the girls, i got the jewelry. There's a great scene Kinski has where he's helping himself to... Uh, oh, to after the sport. people get massacred, the soldiers, he's stealing all the stuff off the bodies. Yep. He's stealing all the stuff. And he's, he's, he's seen. And he has a great look of disgust because he realizes what he did, you know? Yep. Does the film end with every character going to a turnabout? In a way, uh, it's an interesting role for him. And yeah, because once again, you've got the same thing we mentioned where he was, I don't want to say the hero, but George Hilton, who's supposed to be the ostensible hero, is a fucking pain in the ass. He's, he's one of those like pull-up-your-ass Cyclops-type characters, so you like the X-Men movies, uh, who's like, oh, wait, you, you guys were deserters. I'm going to take you back and shoot you, even though you've been great all along and helping me out and doing good stuff. Like, well, fuck you, guy. They might as well just shoot him in the head. I would have shot the guy in the head. But you know, they just kind of let him go because they're good guys underneath it. And you know the blackers kind of tortured by some stuff he did in the war or whatever. And Kinski's just you know you have to you know get what he can get and try not to get killed by this guy. And they get involved with this village because, like you said, they, they treat him like they're heroes. He finds a girl who basically you know falls in love with him, and she's like, "Well, what do you love me for?" And she changes him. You know, it's it's almost uh, an extent like Dorian Gray, where he falls for this girl. But instead of the Dorian Gray thing, where it's like, okay, I decided to ruin her because you know I've been led down the wrong road, and now I regret that and I screwed myself. He doesn't do anything wrong. It's just she ends up getting shot during one of the raids when the uh, I think it was the uh, Germans came through uh, and tried to take the town. And then he just kind of flips out, and of course, there's a sad ending. Uh, but yeah, I mean, he actually does. He's got, a, once again, a nuanced role where, okay, is he a good guy? Well, no. He's definitely an anti hero at best. Uh, is he a bad guy? Well, not in my opinion, but he's a bit self serving for sure. Uh, you know, and the guy that's supposed to be the hero just, you know, is a complete fucking asshole. Uh, and you know, you're hoping that he gets shot the whole time. And unfortunately, he doesn't. He's the one that walks away getting a commendation. Uh, and of course, they get the posthumous commendations to arrest him. But it's an interesting film. I liked it a lot better than the other one. So even though it's the bottom build on that double feature, I would suggest you grab it for Assault in the Wound and, you know, see the other one when you're drunk some night, just like five minute diversion while you're falling asleep or something. <laughs> uh, so Count Dracula's in the middle of this. Uh, which was the Franco film. Again, we discussed it during the Franco shows. I'm not a big fan of it. Uh, it's kind of a failed experiment. I know that uh, Christopher Lee was going around saying, oh, yes, this is the truest it's ever been to the Stoker novel up to this date, which is bullshit. It's not even true to it in the least. Uh, but compared to the Hammer films he was doing, all right, I can see why he said that. doesn't work despite the presence of a young Soledad Miranda who would do much better stuff for Franco just you know, with the very next film, uh, much less going forward until she died. And you've got Klaus in there along with you know other people that you usually see with Franco, like you know Maria Rome, Paul Muller, Fred Williams, Jack Taylor, Emma Cohen. You know, is it a bad film? No, not in the least, especially if you like Franco films. But definitely one that's over celebrated. Um, is there anything you want to say about it before we go on to the Slaughter Hotel? No, I think we covered this so much in Franco, and, and, and I just yeah. mentioned it a little while ago. No, we're good. So next he does Slaughter Hotel for Fernando DeLeo. Fernando DeLeo is usually known for some really good crime films, uh, actually one of my favorite crime film directors. Uh, and we talked Italian crime at one point, one of the shows. Um, Klaus is in it with Margaret Lee and Rosalba Neri, who is fucking gorgeous yeah. in this film. 
And there's some interesting <laughs> outtakes where she you see her, like I said, diddling herself. And there's no question it's her. She's denied it's hers. It's in various points. And it's not. It is her. Uh, nonetheless, it's a. It's a. It really is a Jalo in a way, but it's got a different feel than usual. It's not your typical Jalo. Uh, basically, it's about a nut house, you know, a convalescence home, and these people are all there getting diagnosed. I mean, uh, like I mentioned, Larry, she's there because she's a nymphomaniac, for example. Uh, and I think believe Klaus is one of the doctors or an orderly there. I forget which. Oh, uh, and yeah. And there's, of course, somebody going around in an old – to make it a little bit Italian gothic as well, just to confuse the genres again. There's a guy going around in an old suit of knight's armor killing people. Um, you know, obviously people that have a pull up their ass, oh, it's distasteful. No, it's a great film. It's, it's a really good sort of giallo, somewhat Italian gothic, uh, you know, basically horror sex film of the early 70s. I really, really enjoyed this film always, and especially in the last time I saw it where it was – you know, I think it's still on DVD, but it was cleaned up pretty nicely. Um, anything you want to say about this film since you were excuse me yeah um, well uh, this uh, one of the things was, it was I was such a fan of this movie when I was younger I was trying to locate all the different versions of this Spanish French I think French was pretty much where a lot of this uh, sexier footage came from and mm-hmm. uh, it's just amazing how DeLeo shot alternate versions for different countries, and uh, you know, like uh, you know, like the French, of course, you know, were more uh, tolerable. They want the more sex, and I think the the Japanese uh, want more gore, or basically the Germans want more gore, and I forget how it is. Yeah, it's like one of the things because Japan or Germany always wants gore. France always wants more sex pushing hardcore. You know, the U.S. and Britain want it a little more uptight and a little bit straight laced. Yeah, every country wants something different. I forgot it was pretty who it was. Was it Shriek Show or somebody? Yeah, Shriek Show put it out with ago. the DVD several years back. That's yeah, the one Shriek I think Show. I had. Okay, yeah. They put it out and they surprisingly had this, uh, some of the outtakes. As an extra. Which, but yeah, yeah, as an extra. Also, it would have been great if they actually ran the whole thing, but uh-huh. they had this alternate yeah. version with... Uh, that stuff, which is really good. Which is kind of reminding me of uh, Lisa and the Devil when you had the, what was it, Silver Cosina? Yes. And Alicia O'Rono. Mm-hmm. And which we had never seen before. I don't know. I think that's out of print. And I think in the remastered version that no longer appears. Oh, really? Where there was, there was stuff with Alicia O'Rono and Silver Cosina that we, we never had seen before and it didn't really fit in the movie and I just think they just let the cameras roll. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I mean, that's the kind of stuff I really enjoy. I know exactly what you're talking about. And I'm surprised that it was taken out of the remaster because I have both versions and I was like, oh really? I didn't know that. I wouldn't have got it. I was just stuck with my old version. Uh, But, uh, but, you know, those were good anyway because you got the American soundtracks uh, because I remember like, what was it? Black Sunday or something. One one of those had uh, Black Sabbath had like a Les Baxter soundtrack and it was, everything was completely different and re-edited and, you know, with with Bob, sometimes you're better off getting both versions if you can. Uh, so speaking of uh, Antonio Margarati, uh, Web of the Spider is next up. Um, this one is not out on disc and never has been, but I remember seeing it back in like the, the gray market days. Uh, 
because of that, because of the shitty print I saw, and God, it was atrocious, uh, I was not much of a fan of it. I'm sure nowadays if I'd seen it in a cleaner print, I'd probably love it. So somebody out there, get on the stick, put out Web of the Spider for us. Um, I think, Tony Franciosa is in it. Yeah, yeah, I think Sinister Cinema, who, were they sort of pseudo-gray market? I don't know. Um, yeah. Yeah, the gray market, but I think they're selling Amazon or something. <laughs> so, yeah, what is yeah. that saying? Yeah, whatever happened to Sinister? Are they still around? Yeah, like I said, I they, they sell on Amazon. Oh, I got I some Euro spots from them. Yeah. I um, I really like this movie. and uh, It's a remake of Castle of Blood, the old Barbara Steele picture, which had yes. George's Revere. Um Margariti remade this with Anthony Franciosa, who surprisingly does a very fine job. Um, I like Tony Franciosa. Yeah, I think I think I think he's he's terrific and is really knocks it out of the park. Yeah. Um, he's good in Fathom. He was good in both of his Argento films. I mean, you know, he, I have no problem with Tony. Yeah, and I I think I think Klaus as. Edgar Allan Poe, yes, he was. Right. Uh, was, yes, he was. was pretty cool in his limited screen time. Um, it's eerie. It's an eerie film. It's, uh, in some ways, I like it better. I know some people will scream, Blasphemer. In some ways, I like it better <laughs> than the black and white Margariti picture. And in some ways, it- I like the Margarita is, it, is it because of Klaus and Michelle uh, Michel Mercier and Tony Franciosa, or is it because of the film itself? I think it's the film itself. I think I think the in the uh, if you're asking me that question, I think the '64 picture, which is in black and white, of course, uh, which is right. heavily a gothic, uh, really kind of eerie, spooky, tries to achieve a certain kind of ambiance and succeeds in some parts. I think the color one is creepier, and at some point in time, the uh, for me it was always amped up that Francios is really getting like it's getting nail bitingly the, the tension for him. I yeah. got to get out of the house, and uh, Michelle Mercier was in the Barbara Steele part. Um, he's not entirely in love with her. That was always the problem with the other picture too. The guy romantically falls in love with Barbara Steele, and yep. I think I think this guy's enamored with her. But you know, he's, but he still he still he wants to get her out of the house. But um, I mean, I there is some people have said that. Well, you know, Tony Francioso is Tony Francioso. It's the seventies. Yeah. He's in the name of the game on TV. So you know, it's a seventies guy. You know, his persona playing this part in a movie set in the 1800s, so on and so forth. But I don't think that that was an issue for me because I think he did a fine job. You know? Yeah, like, my memories of this is that it's a lot, like you mentioned, spookier, darker, and less saccharine than the first version. Uh, that said, you know, which one's a better film? I don't know. I mean, for many years now, all I've seen is the earlier film, and therefore I'll stick with that. But I would like to see Web of the Spider again. So if anybody's out there, uh, definitely put it out and clean it up, and I definitely would love to reassess this one, especially since Klaus yeah, is well uh, I'm actually surprised. I, I have forgotten about this picture, though I only saw it again a year ago. <clears throat> I have forgotten that nobody's put this out. I'm thinking, like, why the hell not? 
So this is kind of strange because now, right in the middle of this, okay, we're talking about, you know, we got a Joe D'Amato film coming up. We got another uh, Spaghetti Western coming up. We got a Sergio Caroni film coming up. And what happens here? He does a Gear of the Wrath of God for Werner Herzog. And for most people, for the mainstream audiences or at least art house audiences of the world, this is where his story begins and ends with those five or six films he did for uh for Herzog. I don't think that in the least. I do enjoy a couple of them. I really enjoy Nosferatu. I really enjoy Fitzcarraldo. Uh, Gira and Cobra Verde are problematic for me, and Bozek I couldn't even watch. It was just too weird and depressing. Uh, but uh, Gira, it's an interesting film, uh, but I think it says more about the personal obsessions and, you know, arguably, especially if you watch My Best Fiend, uh, psychoses of Werner Herzog. Um, and this guy, he had a strange relationship with Klaus. And yes, uh, that documentary plays up a lot of the insanity of Klaus himself. But if you listen to some of the things Herzog is saying and watch some of their dynamic, you start to wonder about him as well. And if you look at the way his films are and what they're structured and what they seem to be saying about life, uh, Okay, yeah, there's a lot of stuff about being a dreamer and you know, following your vision no matter what, but nonetheless, I, I think there's something off about Herzog. He's just not – he's not right. <laughs> and this film is the first one to – the evidence – a bit of evidence A for the court, uh, A Gear of the Wrath of God. <sighs> All right. Um, you know, you're, you're better with giving plots, but just generally he's uh, – I hate to say Spanish conquistadori, but okay. He's going through the Amazon. And he's transporting, I believe, a princess. Uh, maybe they're on the run from somebody, or maybe he's bringing them to see, like the Spanish king or whatever, going through the Amazon. And on the way, uh, things get tougher. People start, you know, dying off to attrition. You know, the the dogs run out of food. He throws the dogs overboard and kills them. They eat the dogs. That kind of shit. Uh, oh, this one died. He, this one did whatever. He kept bitten by a snake. There's some Javaro, whatever the hell it is, and they kill this one. Uh, there's a whatever it is. You know, one by one, people start like kind of going off. But in the meantime, what's more the focus of the film is the disintegration of the not just the usual like Lord of the Flies, William Golding, like moral disintegration of the the people as they go out into this savage nature and their savage nature comes out of themselves, you know, heart of darkness type stuff. And that definitely plays part of it. But really more it's about psychological disintegration. It's about these people basically flipping out, especially Aguirre himself or, or yeah, yeah, which is uh Klaus. Um and there's really not much else to say about it if you're going to look at it in that perspective. It's like, well, okay, Klaus slowly goes nuts, uh, becomes more tyrannical. Uh, people will occasionally try to push back at him. He'll do something nuts and flip out at them or threaten them or kill somebody see, in front of them. Uh, it's the there Donald you go. Trump story. Exactly. That's why it bothers me. It's like, I know people like this. There are people that's in the real world. They're called Republicans. Uh, but, <laughs> no, but seriously. Uh, but you they are. Uh, but uh, nonetheless, they're called fascists, really. But uh, it is a right-wing thought. Uh, nonetheless, well, there are well, Stalins well, out there. So. Well, well, I mean, well, that's, that's, that's the whole thing, though. Her, hers, uh, it's an allegory. And, and, and yes. as much as Werner claims to not overwrite work on a script forever until I, I think it's all horseshit. You know, nobody works on a script and jots it out and says, Here it is. You write and write and write and write. 
and so this thing to me was a bit there's a lot to it's an allegory for for Nazi Germany, it's an allegory for fascism, and well, he's German. Klaus is German. You know, you're already you're already loggerheads these guys, and probably funding is German. So let's make it about Fritz Lang we're talking about here. Because Fritz Lang would have done this as an allegory about Hitler, like he did with Mabuse and things like that. And you would have seen, okay, look, this is a proper outhouse film, and he's making a statement and whatever, and all the lefties can get on its side, and all the other people can ignore it or hate it or whatever. This was more sweaty and psychosis, personal psychosis came into play here a lot. And not just Fritz Lang wouldn't have made this movie, but if Fritz Lang had made this movie, he would have had the same problem. So they had to make it about something else. You know? Yeah. And 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 I wonder how many people actually catch that. You know, you know did did ninety percent of the uh, viewing populace catch that? Did I don't think so. People are not always that smart. Yeah, yeah. I'm I mean, surprised. That's what I think it's about. That's what I think it's about. And, there was a period uh, where I was running uh, the book and film club on my job. They, they, there's a while when they were like a little more open-minded, and I had a couple different you know partners, if you will, like you know, kind of like here, where I got somebody like you that's intelligent, knows their stuff, and we just kind of threw ideas back and forth and made it a joint show and kind of did things and showed people new literatures and, and types of whatever. I covered absurdism, I covered decadence, I covered Dadaism, you know, all sorts of things, romanticism, symbolism, and we would go through films. I was showing Ken Russell, and I would show you know whatever. Uh, and one of the things that I noticed was that some people would really, actually a lot of people really liked what they were getting out of things, but nine times out of 10, they were like, I never thought of that. I never realized that. And it was like, really? Cause see some of the stuff, okay, y'all maybe use I know I had a friend accuse me of being a deep thinker. You're probably listening out there, Robert. Hello. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, nonetheless, you know, you would think that some of this stuff is sort of basic. Like it would be okay. Anybody that looks at this film or reads this book is going to pick up that. In essence, at least to some extent, this is about blank. It's perfectly obvious, and yet a lot of people don't catch it. And we're not talking about oh, this person's a moron. We're talking about people that are intelligent, and they just don't get it. I'm like, really? You didn't see that? Okay. Uh, so when you say I'm surprised people don't get things, I'm really not at this point. I'm like, well, I kind of assume that people don't get it, and you're like, well, let's try to point it out, and hopefully they'll pick up some things of their own. And you know, it's like we're the be all end all here, but you would think things that we thought were obvious that everybody else would know it. It's not always the case. So go ahead. Gosh, I'd like to talk about this movie more, but we do have a few more tiles to get through, so yeah. we should move on. Uh, all right, so uh, Death Smiles on the Murder, he does for uh, Joe D'Amato. Um, yeah. it, you know, it's, I don't know, I'm not a big fan of the film, even though I do love D'Amato, and everybody wants to hear about the, our D'Amato discussion. We definitely did a show all based on him and his films. Um, was a lot of fun. Who was, yes, <laughs> uh, she, who was in, uh, what was that, Death Laid an Egg, uh, and Jack Morrissey Stewart's in it, and Kansky. I don't really think it's that great. It doesn't work that well as a Jalo. It doesn't work that well as a Joe D'Amato film because it's early for him. Um, you know, there's really not much to say about it from my perspective. Is there anything you want to say before we go? No, actually, it's one of those. It's one of those movies that was very problematic. It disappointed many. I think I speak for many people of my age, our age, who are Euro horror boss. Or Euro genre buffs. 
who sought this movie out. It was really not one of the easier ones to get. And yes, there's a reason. Uh, <laughs> That's it. It's, it's, Some of them there's a reason for it. It's 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 glacial paced. Yep. Um, and not for not for the lack of uh, no. What I'm trying to say is, even though it has glacial pacing, it doesn't mean it's a good movie. There's plenty of movies that have glacial pacing, mm-hmm. but. Uh, um, this isn't one of them. It's just it's got pacing problems. It's, we don't even know what the hell the movie's about. It's 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 hinted <laughs> exactly. at about this. It's about you notice I didn't describe the plot. <laughs> and then I have a problem with, with Eva, Eva or Ewa Orlin, who was uh, an interesting looking Swede, but yeah, yeah she was the she was the the uh, flavor of the day for a while because she was in Candy yep. with everybody yep. who. Uh, was interested in her, uh, which is like Walter Matthau, <laughs> Richard Burton, Marlon Brando. Yes, folks, there's a movie with all these guys and her. Um, yep. Based on a Terry Southern uh, story. Um, yes. But she couldn't parlay that into anything of a success. So um, here she shows up in 73 in this Joe D'Amato picture. Which looks good, Joe. You know, Aristide. Aristide oh, he's a cinematographer by trade. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, you know, all his movies look, especially his porn. Oh, um, the Emmanuel films are excellent. The, yeah, the travelogues. Yeah. The, nobody else films travelogues like Joe D'Amato. Nobody films porn by Joe D'Amato. It's a shame he's dead. True. Um, his porn was great. Well, I saw it, but anyway. <laughs> You've seen a lot more, I'm sure. That's, that's another <laughs> story. But anyway, um, yeah, so this is a failed movie, and um, and it's funny that the other two pictures he did uh, next year for Sergio Garone. Yeah, Lover of the similar. Monster. Oh, that was bad. Yes, it is. Lover, uh, the Hand That Feeds the Dead. There's two movies back to yep. back, which are very similar to this in that they too are slow period pace. pieces. Yep. Yeah, Super slow period pieces where you don't know what's going on or don't really care. You're kind of falling asleep. I think that's the problem with these movies, too, is that while you're watching them, you're like, what the fuck is this about? <laughs> this is the only it's like talking. Disconnected scenes of people sitting around taking tea and talking. Maybe they go in a carriage and they talk. Maybe they stop in a mansion and talk. Maybe somebody goes to bed and they like put her to bed and then the two guys stand outside and talk about her. But nothing, you know, it was like, well, what was this about? Who cares? <laughs> Very then, gothic in the, the wrong way. In the second picture, I think it's the lover of the monster. Uh, Garon takes uh, just a weird thing of taking Klinsky into, oh, a nice little forest, not not unlike the one from the end of uh, Argento's opera, that, that beautiful countryside. And he's yes. watching this girl, you know, close up of his eyes, and then there's like hands attacking the girl, sort of like she's being. Uh, trying to rape her or something and will kill her. And there's more close ups of Klaus's eyes. And and it's it's like yeah. But then we cut and there's Klaus looking from a far away distance. So is yeah. he's watching somebody else do this or does he did he do it or is he imagining it's that, do it? 
it's that obnoxious 60s, you know, am I on drugs hallucination kind of stuff that you'll get with Jalos of this period. That's why I really yeah. don't like the Jalos from the late 60s, not till the early 70s that they start working. All those well, Carol funny, Baker jobs. Yeah, yeah well, no, we, I like some of those. We, had, we discussed that, too, during the, the Lindsay show. Yeah. But um, I guess what I was trying to get at was that Sergio Garon was he's not a great filmmaker by far, but he made no. some really brutal movies. Not exploitation. Yeah, <laughs> not exploitation. And that's what he's best I mean, known for. We're talking, we're, we're talking like you think the Olsen movies are something. You should see these. They're really hard. oh no. <laughs> uh, no, uh, I, I say that facetiously. You know, I don't. Hello? Did you drop off? I think my co-host dropped off on the side of this. Uh, you there? Yes, I'm still here. I dropped in and out. Okay. I was, did you drop in and off or was it me? Because it was like you were talking and all of a sudden goodbye. You said don't and then you were gone. <laughs> really? Uh, but, yep. Yeah. yeah. So you were talking no, about the films versus uh, Garoni. Yeah, yeah. It must have been the studio because I'm still here and I didn't go anywhere. Okay. Good. Oh, <laughs> I'm glad no. you didn't go anywhere. So um, um, after this, he does the two. Oh, you, you finish yeah. up? Go ahead. It doesn't matter. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. Those films are so boring. Uh, uh, after this, uh, sorry, my cat's acting up. Uh, he does a couple of the Shanghai Joe films, which are bizarre. Um, they did a couple of mishmashes of the spaghetti western and eastern whatever. I mean, okay, yes, you had the Kung Fu series with David Carradine was kind of one of those. Red Sun with Charlie Bronson and Tashiro Mifune is another one. Uh, one of these was Shanghai Joe and its sequel. Unfortunately, these were probably the bottom of the barrel, <laughs> especially the sequel. Um, and Klaus is in both of them for whatever reason. And uh, there's a guy going around doing Kung Fu in the middle of the Old West. Uh, and not even as whatever, because at least with the Kung Fu TV series with Carradine, they threw in a lot of Buddhist mysticism. And I always personally, when I was a kid and I was on, I used to love watching the parts where he was in the Shaolin Temple. And, you know, he's getting the advice, whole grasshopper, you know, to touch a leaf is to, you know, I don't pick your nose or stupid ass Buddhist aphorisms. Uh, they're all meaningless anyway. But, you know, when you get to this point, you see something like this and it's like, well, they're really trying to just, you know, capitalize on Show Brothers Kung Fu and it's not working. Um, there's really not much to say about it. I mean, the second one is directed by first one is directed by Mario Caino, uh, who you might recognize from a couple of shows in our Italian sleeve show, and the second one is directed by Vito Albertini, who was the guy behind the original Black Emmanuel, uh, who brought us uh, more or less Laura Gemser, uh, who would go on to star in many Joe Damato films, and uh, I think uh, what's his name there took her as well, Bruno, De, uh, not Bruno, De Clay, Bruno, uh, the guy that did Rats and uh, Hell's Living Dead. Bruno Matei took her for a couple, and she was in a bit of that stuff. And she was also, like I mentioned earlier, in Murder Obsession for Freda. Uh, but anyway, so that was his claim to fame. He did one of these shitty Shanghai Joe films. They're really not worth talking about otherwise. But now he's starting to do interesting stuff. This is, for me, when his career really picks up. As much as I enjoyed him in Spaghetti Westerns, much as I enjoyed him in The Creamies, and, okay, he was in The Jowls, such as they were – uh, he starts doing really weird shit now. So now he does Lifespan, which is a Dutch film, I believe, with Tina Almont in it, who was, you know, the late Tina Almont, who was, I don't know, I found her strangely sexy. She was kind of a, a very decadent woman in the sense of like an Aja Argento uh, when she was still acting. 
Um, you know, redheaded uh, French. I believe she was the daughter of. Uh, ooh, there's another Oma who's uh, popular. I uh, can't think of the name right now. Um, yeah. Yes, there you go, Jean Pierre Oma, uh, art house uh, actor, and. Basically, it is one of these weird. You know, in the seventies, there was a lot of films like Clonus, where they were kind of concerned about uh, the intrusion of science in medicine into, you know, what it means to be human and, and uh, you know, life in existence and things like that. Lifespan is like that, but even more philosophical. I mean, very much so. I mean, ostensibly, it's about. You know, literally, just you know, we can do this to expand and lengthen lifespans, but there becomes this there's a crime intrigue sort of angle to it. There's a sex angle and a kinky sex at that. You know, all gets involved with some like masochism stuff. That's pretty cool. Uh, you know, it's it's a fascinatingly weird film that you know. Guess where it came out from? Mondo Macabro, and it fits. You can see why it came out from them. I definitely really enjoyed this film quite a bit. Uh, is there anything you want to say about it before we go to Jack the Ripper? No, I, I think it touched upon all the juicy stuff. Okay, so uh, Jack the Ripper then for Franco, which honestly of his Franco films is probably for me his best. Uh, I did not like this when I saw it the first couple of times. I still don't consider it a great Franco film, uh, but there are elements to it that work. There is some sex in there. There is some sleaziness. There is uh, Lena Romay buck naked and uh, Jack Klaus as basically the Ripper. Um, it is, you know, another period piece, which is part of the problem with it for me. Uh, but, you know, there's a lot of smoke and fog, as there should be in a Jack the Ripper film. Uh, there's a lot of sex, as there should be in a Jack the Ripper film. And there's pretty uncomfortable violence for 1976, as, you know, basically it's a Jack the Ripper film. There should be. Um, is there anything you want to say about it that we didn't already touch on in our Franco show? Uh... Uh, I didn't really like this movie. Yeah. I, I have to say, I never really did. And probably because I just thought the violence was extreme. Um, there, you know, yes. again, you know, it's, you know, don't get me wrong, I'm not against violence, but when it's excessive and it's brutal, it's, it's past the ha-ha funny or Absurdity, the absurd level. You know, sometimes you can watch something that's it's absurd. You'll, dude, this is so great. You know, like Fuji movie. No, no, it's it's a, it's a different kettle of fish here. It's yeah. just gross. It's gross. For me, and, what I always say about that myself is that fantasy violence works for me. Like, I don't give a shit about seeing a zombie rip somebody's head off. I mean, I don't need to see the CG, you know, extra gore, but, you know, I'll sit there and watch a Fulci film one even blank an eye. Uh, for example, I mean, there's other films I've seen that probably worse than that. Uh, I have a little bit more problem with the Giallo because, especially Argento, it's really kind of hands-on. Yeah. Especially knowing that a lot of times the hands doing the killing are his. Uh, but you know, I can still watch that because there's a level of distancing provided by the the post sync dubbing and the fact that it's you know you know many years ago and the, yeah, the crazy brutal. soundtrack. Let's yeah, agree, they're brutal, right? Yeah, they're brutal. Yes, and I, but I think it's now a you get to stuff like this. 
and stuff like yeah. moving on forward to more modern films and you know torture porn and soul and all that shit. And it gets more realistic. It's like uh, those here at the death mode. It's like watching a necrophagia video. I'm like disgusted by those. And I love all these stupid films that they basically love and are referencing, and yet they're too real. You know, as it gets more realistic. The more I tune out, it's just like, nah, I don't want to see this. This is just making well, me sick to my stomach. That's the problem. And, 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 and Klaus's performance, you know, and of course, Dub, is uh, interesting. It's even, I ever have to say, if you want to suck come is... back. <laughs> hmm? Doesn't Lena suck is, uh, you know. <laughs> I, well, I, I seem to remember a scene with that. <laughs> well, well. Or he goes down on her. I wasn't even talking about that. It was just like it was talking about who knew no, us. No, just performance. You watched performance. Oh my god. Um, <laughs> threw me off. Okay, we agree. We didn't like this movie. <laughs> <coughs> well, I like it more than the other ones. He did for Franco. <laughs> <coughs> That's payback for the. Uh, That's the supposed show the to other be day. me. Not you. The show the other day that nobody heard yet. Uh, you got me for good a couple times, really good. Um, so stay tuned, folks. Uh, next, I think probably Tuesday or Wednesday, you will hear the conclusion of our Bond show. Uh, look forward to it. It's loads of fun. And we even have a special guest who's going to be doing a, a little uh, closeout for us. It was rather amusing. Uh, so uh, Nosferatu the Vampire, which – would have been my favorite Herzog film with Kinski until you know I saw Fitzgeraldo for the, for different reasons. Uh, I really do like this film. It is nothing like the original Nosferatu. Uh, it's rather, actually rather strange. There are two not as different as they like to play up, but reasonably different edits of this one: a German language one and one a English uh, soundtrack one. And it's not just the soundtrack that changes; the performances that change and whatever. Um, Extremely atmospheric, extremely weird and bizarre, and that's what I like about it. It's, it's totally nightmare logic, which is really what all the best horror films and cult films have. Uh, they, it, you know it could not possibly be happening in a real world of any sort. Uh, that This could never happen to you, even if vampires were real. Uh, just the, the setting, everything about it is totally off kilter. You're totally inside of Herzog's twisted you know, fever dream here. Um, you know, Isabella Johnny, I've never looked at her twice, but in this movie, maybe because they made her so pale and gothic, I'm like, she's kind of hot in a weird way. Uh, you know, Bruno Gans, I think it was, or, or was it Roland Topper? I forget which one was the the weird, uh, I guess he's Renfield, and he's the one that sends him to the castle and pays him for I it. I think and, it's Roland Topper, yeah. Yes, in this little Dutch, you know, Amsterdam village. So you've got the uh, the river going through with the canals and all that jazz. Uh, very atmospheric, very very strange. And Klaus's performance is it's quirky as shit. You think that Udo Kier and his take in uh, Blood for Dracula was really you know one of the strangest Draculas you've seen? You've got to see Klaus in this thing if you haven't already. Uh, I actually really, really like him in this film, and I really like this film per se. Um, I don't know what else to say about it for the sake of moving on. So, and the music is interesting too because uh, he likes to use uh, Popol Vuh. Uh, they, they kind of, I think, made their name from him from working with Herzog, uh, you know, German electronic music. Uh, but 
you know who else throws in music for this one as well is Florian Fricka from Kraftwerk. So I was like, okay, that's interesting. Uh, so, but yeah, I don't know what else to say about this other than that. I really like it. And if you have not seen it, I would definitely give it a spin. Um, your call, which personally I, I gravitate towards the American cut. But uh, so, what's your take on this one? Oh, that's interesting. Um, I actually have the soundtrack. Uh, you you really? commented. Like a long time ago. What is that shit you're always playing in the background? It's actually Popo's Wall. <laughs> really? Actually, during most of our shows, I, I'm actually playing Popo's Wall in the background. And is that your mood? <laughs> it's, yeah, it gets me in the mood for weirdness. And <laughs> I had a friend. Actually, he's an old hippie. And he used to do this thing to one of his girlfriends, or maybe a couple of his girlfriends, like a hazing thing, where every time they go to the John, he would blast the Suspiria soundtrack just to, and turn off the lights just to fuck with them. <laughs> so I, I could see I, that. Yeah, no, I, I wouldn't go to that extreme. <laughs> but anyway, back to Nosferatu. Uh, Kinski's performance is feral. Yes, he's, very much uh, so. He's actually, with the makeup and the way... He plays it in the way Herzog envisioned it. He's like a a rat, a bat. No, he's yep. he's pale. He's hues of blue. He's definitely nocturnal. So I mean, they definitely thought about this stuff. You know, like how are we gonna do this? What are you gonna look like? How are you gonna play it? Well, they were going it's, with the Max Shrek version, but nonetheless, yeah, the way Kinski does it is very different. Version, but but they were building upon much more feral. Yes, and very even much so. in the English language version, you know, Kinski Klaus manages to uh, kind of probably because he's working with these ridiculous teeth as well. He, he manages to actually drop <laughs> a lot of these Germanic accent, which is yes. nice. a, a really good point you brought up. These are two completely different movies, and and why is that? They didn't just go in and dub one into English. The German one's a hundred and something minutes long. The English one's like ninety-two. And right. um, talk about glacially paced. But you know what? This is a movie where it actually works. And they're just—it's it's a very romantic film too. I find romantic it, in a find, gothic way. Yes, but that describes me. So, uh, <laughs> romance in the graveyard. <laughs> no, no, I, I think it's a very romantic film. It's romantic, uh, Isabella Johnny and, and the King of the Undead. Yes. And, uh, Bruno Gans and, and his, yeah, there, and there's also that, it's always been in the best of the vampire lore things, is the homoeroticism, you know? Yeah. Never address it too much because nobody really wants to know. Actually, of all films, Fright Night really kind of brought that out a little bit more. Chris Sarandon. Oh, yeah, well, two of the people in that were gay. It's beside the point. I wouldn't go to those extremes. I'm trying to be a-literal. You're oh, trying to be literal. You got Amanda Beers and you got the guy that wound up doing gay porn, and they were both in that movie. So, of course, yeah, it was so erotic. But that, that doesn't mean. That's not the point they're making, though. <laughs> Uh, you know, okay, let's just say, we're both gay, we're going to do a movie, of course it's going to come out gay, I mean, (laughs) you're not going to be able to hide it. That's that's, that's not what I was saying at all. I was trying to say something different. No, no, I give up with this one. 
Let's go to Wojciech. <laughs> All right, so Wojciech, um, I like I mentioned earlier, I tried watching it. I tried sitting through it. It's too depressing. I mean, it's got the feel of – it's nothing like that, but it's got the feel of that British kitchen sink sort of melodrama. Uh, Wojciech's just this guy, and he's like living in a shitty apartment in – I don't know where it was, Berlin or Poland or wherever the hell it was, uh, and going to a meaningless job every day, almost like a factory-type job. He's, he's dressed in prison grays at all times. Uh, basically, his life just sucks. I mean, it, I don't know if he was living by himself in the apartment or if he's just with a cold wife that didn't care about him. Uh, and I remember him like eating breakfast. I'm like, this is so not my kind of movie. And I forward up, so okay, is anything going to happen? No, I right, forget. I'm done with this one. <laughs> so I believe well, it to you. Wife, the, the wife is an integral part of the story. Go for also it. including madness and murder. Uh, but what I think what's interesting is that Klaus looks so extreme in this picture. Oh yeah. <laughs> I think he shaved uh, his head. He's a, he's a mess in this thing. He shaved his head, his skin looks horrible, ruddy, and I think that there's a rumor, and it might even be on one of the, where did I hear this, somewhere, that the makeup that he had to wear for Nosferatu kind of really fucked with his skin for a long time, so it took really? a while to, you know, kind of fix it up a little bit, and probably one of the reasons why he looks so bad and the, the lack of hair makes total sense that they probably went right into this picture uh, during, possibly, or right after Nosferatu because, you know, his hair didn't grow back yet from, from that picture. Wojciech right. is a, even for me, it's it's an endurance test. It's, uh, yeah. It, I mean, he's, he's phenomenal. I mean, no, again, we, we mentioned this before. You really want to see a couple of movies where this guy we're discussing tonight can really act. Yes, but it's tough to watch because he's revolting looking, but he's supposed to be. He's on the edge of madness, but he's supposed to be. Yep. He spews bile and hatred, but he's, that's the character. You know? Right. And it's based on a play, I believe. And uh, or a book, or a book and then a play, and it's a tough to watch movie. It's one of those Herzog pictures that actually is tough to watch. But uh, I noticed that sometimes it was in, and sometimes it was not in some of those uh, Herzog Kinski box sets they put out every so often. It kind of right. appears in there. Disappears, but you're right. It's not always in there, much. probably because they don't yeah. want to deal with it so much. Like I said, uh, yeah. I know I couldn't deal with it. So uh, next up, he jumps to a completely different arena. He starts doing slasher films, uh, which is interesting. So his first one is probably his best, which is Schizoid. Uh, he's in it with some strange people, Donald Wilkes, who I thought was like one of those Price is Right people. Uh, you know, the, the bimbos that just like spin the tires or uh, the tiles no, no, or no, like no, a, no. a white type. Okay. Uh, Mariana Hill, who was one, but she was very pretty, and she was in stuff like uh, – what the hell was the zombie film from the early – Messiah of Evil. Um, Craig yeah. Wasson, who was a TV uh, – I think he might have been a soap opera or, or sitcom actor. I remember him, a uh, blonde, curly hair guy. Uh, and Christopher Lloyd, of all people. Doc Brown is in the damn thing. It's a, it's a Golden Globus job, uh, so it winds up under the Canon umbrella. Um 
I don't know if we ever did talk canon films. I thought we did. Uh, yeah, we did do a canon show, uh, so it may have been discussed there as well. Uh, you know, is it the world's greatest slasher film? No, but it's interesting because here you've got Klaus in it, who is either the ultimate red herring or the killer. Uh, so we don't give that away uh, as a psychologist for a bunch of you know lonely hearts women in their I guess I, I don't want to say forties, but you know that kind of an age range, uh, housewives basically, rich housewives. Uh, and, you know, it's a slasher film, so what else do you want to say about it? Um, then I'll, I'll just jump ahead and do a couple of them in a batch, and you can comment on what you want to comment. Uh, Fruits of Passion, he does in 81. Uh, over in Japan for Shuji Teriyama. A strange film, but I like it. Um, it's actually from the Pauline Royage novel, uh, Story of Valor, actually the sequel to that. Um, but it doesn't really feel like that in a lot of ways. Uh, Isabel Yair's in it. Um, kind of a... As I guess you should be a, a victim-looking, uh, kind of attractive but fragile-looking uh, French starlet. Uh, not afraid to be completely undressed and be in weird situations, obviously, because we're talking about S&M. Uh, but there's not a lot of it in the film that's shown. It's not that direct. I mean, it's even less so in some ways, and, and more so in others, than the uh, the ones that we had seen over here from uh, the fellow that did the uh, first couple of Emmanuel films and Story of O. Uh, can't think of his name right now. We we spoke to his films earlier too. Uh, Just French Jake. director. Uh, Just Jacob, yes. Um, you know, in some ways more so, in some ways less so than that. Uh, I, but I, there is certainly I enough like, nudity in this I, one. I I like this one. Uh... But it's it's flawed, of course. Uh, oh yeah, definitely flawed. Uh, Klaus, uh, you know, just mentioning how two years before Klaus looked like shit. He looks much better here. He uh, thinned down his hair, his big blonde mane, and his. And, uh, but he still looks sickly in it. Not that he's not supposed to, but uh, you know, yeah. he's supposed to be decadent and, and you know whatever, but dissolute. Uh, and well, it's I think that's part film. of the I mean, part, though. He's supposed to be an older man that. That probably himself, he's an older man with yeah. that's magnetic. Um, yes. That women will do things for him because you got to remember in his private life. You know, uh, we just touched upon that briefly in his private life. The the guy was a what's the term a chick magnet? You know, yeah, he's a Lothario. Um, yeah, a real Lothario, and uh, for as much as he came on to women, it was. It was reciprocated. You know, it's it's, yes, it's, it's interesting. a very weird thing. And the love of and his life was this Asian woman who uh who he had Nikolai with, the the, the boy. Right. Um he kept breaking up with her and he kept going back with her. So uh even though we had Deborah Ginsky who eventually secretly married so as the word goes, but who knows? Yeah. And so, yeah, I this, wanted to jump in with Fruits of Passion because I know you're going to jump right into Venom. No, go for it. I was going to finish up Fruits of Passion, but go ahead. No, go ahead. Oh, you're done. Okay, because what I was going to say was that uh, for those who have not read uh, either of the old books, basically, you know, Sir Stephen there, he, uh, she is his devoted lover who he puts into all sorts of situations. Uh, oh, yes, prove your love for me. And he basically whores her out and those sorts of strange things. Very... Um, 
Italian in a, in a sense and very French decadent in another sense. Um, I don't know what it is, but it's a strain you will see in their literature and films, uh, this kind of weird perverse joy of cuckolding and being cuckolded. Uh, and, you know, basically also it's like a test to see how far you'll go for me. And, you know, it's, it's kinky in that way. The Emmanuel books were certainly that way as well. Uh, and, of course, Sod well, yeah. and things like that. And since you brought this up, one of the things with this movie is that, you know, it's the same thing that comes up in the literature, too. I mean, it's it's never not there. Right. Is that over the course of time, that male character falls for the the object of his desire to the point right, where it's too late. Once, <laughs> it's too late. It's like I created a monster. You know. Exactly. That's exactly it. That's what it's all about. It's it's that's why I think it's very Italian. It's that Madonna horror thing going on. Uh, but anyway, uh, definitely worth your while. Not as good as some of the other films. Not like the Image or uh, even J- Jacob's Story of O or the Emmanuel films. Uh, especially not the ones he didn't direct. The uh, the Black Emmanuel films, which are much better. Uh, but nonetheless, I did enjoy it for its strangeness. And for those of you who are into that sort of thing, there's a drag queen that runs the house. The, the whorehouse madam is actually named Pita, which is Japanese for Peter. Uh, but you know. Of course, he's dressed as a woman uh, and comes off as one. Um, so then we goes to Venom, which is another – you talk about films we mentioned a couple times where it was close calls, where Klaus was in a film with somebody who was a volatile personality but never really got any scenes with him. Here he does. Uh, not as much as we might have liked. It wasn't as volatile as we had hoped. But he's in a fucking film with Oliver Reed. And those of you who listen to our Oliver Reed show know just how volatile that combination can be. Um, for what it's worth on film, it feels like Reed is flaming pissed that he's being uh, asked to share the stage with this man who he is terrified can upstage him. Uh, while Kinski has a coolness and disdain towards Reed, which yeah. may be setting him off even more. Uh, so that's just the behind-the-scenes things you can pick up there. But nonetheless, because he is cool, it's not the all-out maniac versus maniac thing we were expecting. You're expecting us to devolve into a fistfight and things flying around through the room, and yet it's more of a subtle, like, fuck you to each other. Um, you know, basically, well, it's one well, of the... I want to okay. jump in here, too, is that, you know, reads from that old school of, you know, <coughs> raging alcoholic drinkers. Yes. You know, which fuels their their uh, their inhibitions and everything else, and like you know, Reed was legendary for being crazy. The interesting thing was, Klaus, you know, he was. I'm sure he dabbled in things, but it's not what he was known for. So you know, it's funny, y'all. He has a guy who was probably drinking and pissed at Klaus Kinski. Klaus is already crazy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yes, as you could just true. imagine, like you don't you don't have to drink to be crazy. He's already crazy. That's the bottom line. Klaus really is like looking down at him and kind of ignoring him and just doing his business. Like you don't matter. You're an insect. And Reed is flaming pissed at this. How dare you? Uh, and How that's dare the you? Have another drink. Yeah. <laughs> right, and, and that's what makes the film really worth watching. A lot of people don't like it because it doesn't live up to the promise you would hope. Nicole Williamson's in it, who was, I believe, Merlin in Excalibur. Uh, Sarah Miles, you know, the old slap and tickle uh, veteran. Uh, Susan George is in it, who I love. We discussed her in some of the British horror films and the Hammer things. Uh, Michael Gow 
uh, Sir Edward Hardwick, John Forbes Robertson from the Doctor films we talked about during the the Slap and Tickle series uh, show. Uh, but you know, does it really work as a whole? Well, not really. It's more of a quiet, not even a heist film, but it, it is basically you know the follow up of a heist. Um, and they're all kind of working together while there's a a cobra. They get holed up in a house to do a home invasion while they're trying to get away from this thing and work out their plan to get out of the country with their their ill gotten gains. And um, you know, they're all kind of turning on each other because the three of them were partners. And in the meantime, there is a, a sinister cobra that is loose and ready to kill people. Uh, going through the vents in the house and whatever the hell else, and at first they don't believe it, and then they're terrified, and you know people getting off. Interesting film. I certainly enjoyed the hell out of it. I always did, but it's dry and very British. So then he goes back to Herzog for not his last, but what I think maybe his best, if oh, only maybe most product. Whoa, 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 whoa. You 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 jumped the movie though. You jumped Buddy Buddy, which is a Billy <laughs> Billy Wilder. Okay. Yeah, it's a Billy Wilder movie, man. Billy Wilder, the <coughs> celebrated filmmaker, and 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 Klaus has a partisan assassin or something. I don't know. It's probably, I think it's Billy Wilder's last movie. You know, some like it hot. Wilder to me. Wilder? Yeah, exactly. Some like it hot. That's all he is. You know, people walk around and drag yeah. the whole time. You know, Jack Lemmon and uh, Tony Curtis. <laughs> right, is it Jack Lemmon? I, I don't take him seriously. Out? I can't take him Lemon seriously. Billy Wilder's like a clown to me. Go ahead. <laughs> both their mouth out are uh, they're in this picture, and, and you know they're just co-starring with Paul Apprentice, who was like, Klaus. oh, she's Paul Apprentice too. <laughs> wow, Paul Apprentice too. And they they end Who's up in a sex. Well, well, the thing is, they end up in a. It's it's based on a very. He dropped off again. Okay. Um, while my co-host drops off. <laughs> hey, there you are. Oh, no, you're gone again. I don't, it's not me because you're cutting out too. Interesting. All right. Well, one of us is cutting yeah. out, so we'll find out who it is later. But So you were saying something about them being in a sex club? No, a sex clinic. Oh, sex clinic. Okay. It's ba- it's based on a a, a then popular French uh, comedy, and uh, Billy Wilder was talking to directing the American remake, so they brought back Lemon and Mathau. This is 1981 of all things, too. And I think I saw this movie on HBO. <laughs> now that you're saying this, okay, yeah. So so Klaus is the the guy who runs the sex clinic. Wow. I didn't even I remember him being in it. I was, I was, like, that. I was yeah. like, you know, a child when I saw this, and I was just like, I have some crappy Walter Matthau film. My father used to watch a lot of my hopscotches around the same time with Linda Jackson. Uh, but anyway, so, it's funny, funny, buddy. Okay. So uh, he goes back to Herzog after that uh, wonderful piece of film uh, and does Fitzcarraldo, though, which, again, like I said, Arguably, if you between this and Nosferatu are the best films he did with him. Um, this one's really interesting because once again, it's one of those rare roles where Klaus is effectively the hero, perhaps an anti-hero, 
Uh, and again, it goes back to what we were talking about with Herzog earlier, this idea of the dream and pursuing one's personal vision being all-encompassing and more important than anything else in life. Uh, your, your main goal here in existence is to pursue your dreams, and that's kind of what this was. Here's this guy who's an opera fanatic, and he's also – I forget. I think he builds railroads or some shit, and he's simultaneously trying to build a railroad through, I think, the Andes Mountains or something uh, by you know taking a ship in, over impassable terrain, basically up on top of a mountain uh, so they can get to the other side and you know finish up his tracks that he didn't finish up for many years ago. Uh, and also at the same time, bring culture to the savages of the Amazon. So instead of just like being there like uh, a gear of wrath of God or later a Culpa Verde, you know, working with them, uh, he's also there, you know, playing opera phonographs the whole time. Uh, and Claudia Cardinal is his long-suffering wife or girlfriend. And it's interesting because it sounds like a stupid movie. It doesn't sound like anything like, oh, yeah, I would really like this. But I did, and maybe it's because Klaus is, number one, super erratic, of course. You know, he always is. Uh, but it's, he's the hero. I mean, he comes off really well. You, you actually don't walk away like, oh, okay, it's Klaus being crazy. It's like, no, I think he was trying to do good. You know, And maybe he did. Maybe he, he did something good in the end, despite the fact that it was a failed venture in the end. Uh, you know, it was it, it's that sort of a film, and therefore, you know, I I really do enjoy it. Um, so, what did you want to say about this one? Well, it's amazing that Klaus ended up replacing Jason Robards of all people, who originally right. had the part. That would not have worked. <laughs> you still there? Okay, and it's uh, very strange how that didn't work out. So then Klaus, who has already worked with Herzog, is back and he has the lead. Very strange movie. Uh, it's a great movie, though. I mean, it's... Yeah. It's... <sighs> it's hard to even discuss this film. <laughs> it's yeah. About yeah it's, like... it's, a, it's a very... Uh, it's a theme that comes up in Herzog films often. But it's Manus Manus. as a positive. And, well, it's also about uh, trying to achieve one's dream while being mad. Exactly, so. right. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, it's hard to describe other than that, to be honest with you. It's, it's kind of, both of us are stumped at how to bring this one across to you, but it really is worth a view. If you can get a look at this, you know, Whatever it is, YouTube, some streaming service or whatever, you give it a look, and if you like it, you know, there's a decent Blu-ray of it out there. It's definitely worth your time. Um, you, and you described it well. It's, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's take a ship over the mountain. Uh, there's some animal stuff in here that I'm not too yes. fond of, but yes. because I'm very sensitive to that personally. So, um, but it's not hers. You know, we're not talking... Uh, Theodato. Uh, but, but, but it was like, well, it happened. So, anyway. Yeah. So, uh, next he makes a strange one, which is Creature. Uh, basically, just a space horror film, sort of an alien knockoff. He's really kind of fifth or sixth build. I remember him being in it, but he just kind of makes scowly faces and throws a fit, and then he's dead. It, it, it's not really a big part for him. 
Um, and then he does Crawl Space, which is his last, you know, slasher, if you will, uh, which I don't know. I just had a real distaste for this film the first time I saw it, and then later I gained a certain bemused affection for it because I kind of like David Schmoller films, as crappy as they are, uh, and he's the guy that uh, directed this thing. And there's really nobody in it worth a damn except for maybe Sherry Buchanan you may recognize from a couple of these other crap films of the period. Um, basically, wow. and what's interesting about it, it's a Charlie Band production. Sergio Salvati does the cinematography, and Pino DiNaggio gives the score. So it's part Italian, part you know band slash full moon, and part you know some weird slasher film with Kinski in the middle of it, and a sick-looking, aged Kinski. I don't know how he got so bad for this film. I mean, maybe it was just him made up for the part, but he looks old. Yeah. He looks like he's about to die. And he's playing a, basically an old Nazi that has – he's living in this building, and he's like the weird tenant that spies on everybody. You know, he's like the landlord. I think it was the and landlord. Of course, you know, yeah, and there's like Jewish yeah. girls in there, and he does like, you know, nasty stuff to them. Uh, I don't think it was just them, but nonetheless, that subtext is definitely they played up. Uh, so it's an ugly film in a lot of respects, but – you know, if you like Klaus, if you like slashers, it's like, well, somewhere down the bottom of your list, you may want to check out Crawl Space too. <laughs> well, you know, so, this, is not, this is not normally my type of film. Yeah, you you definitely touched upon the unsavory parts of it, and yeah, it's it's got some nasty things going on in here. Um, yeah. <laughs> but that being said, there's something. What's that term called when you can't look away from something? What's that? What's that called? Oh yeah, yeah. Like what's uh when you look at an accident, basically, it's not shouting yeah, yeah. for it because it's a kick out of it, but you know. Yeah. Uh, yeah, when you can't look away from something, and there's a lot of that in here, probably because he's still magnetic. Yes, and you're right. He does look like shit in this movie, but he's getting toward the end of his life. Yeah. Um, that being said. But he didn't look bad like this in Fitzgeraldo, so I don't know what the hell happened, or even Creature. Uh, so then we move on to Cobra Verde, which is the next year, the last of his Herzog uh, films, and probably the most distasteful. Um, once again, you're back to Agira territory, where it's another metaphor for fascism. I think this time he was trying to make something of a light, you know, oblique statement on you know the U.S. involvement so much in South America at the time, you know the whole uh, Contra Sandinista thing, or just imperialism per se because it's set in Africa. But you know it, that's a really oblique thing, and you could just definitely say, just easily say, no, what are we talk about there's really nothing there. Um, it's it's about exploitation, really, and it's about treating natives like shit, and that's kind of it. I was not comfortable with this film in any real respect. Uh, I have to I, you for a moment. Maybe I, because our time limit's coming up, you are definitely cutting in and out really quickly. Oh, really? Interesting. Yeah. I wonder if we're not being able to go over anymore. Oh, I think that's... Yeah. Okay. Yeah, you uh, would definitely go... I was getting every other word. Okay, so what I was saying is I'm very uncomfortable with Cobra Verde. It's, at the very least, it's about exploitation uh, of indigenous cultures and things like that, you know, uh, imperialism. And it's just not – I mean I tried to watch it through a couple of times, and every time I end up saying, nah, this just isn't my thing. Um, what did you want to say about this one? Oh, nice to see 
these two guys working together again. Uh, nice to see uh, Kinski climbing back up from depths of B movies and uh, war movies. He just he worked for Margariti twice during this period too, and uh, from that crawl space picture. So nice to see them. You know, him and Herzog and, you know, a major picture and a major budget. And, of course, they're fighting again while they're trying to get this movie made. Yeah, that's... It's like they tried to take things, elements from Fitzcarraldo, and tried to take elements from McGear. Definitely tried to make a different movie. And they wound up making the same movie, just not as interesting as either one of those two. Yeah, more distasteful, less interesting, and yeah, it just doesn't work. Um, so then he does his last two films, uh, which I believe were both released posthumously. Uh, Nosferatu in Venice. Uh, it went by another title as well. I can't remember what it was. Uh, but that's the name of it. Was. Vampires in Venice, that's it. Uh, which you can probably get from uh, that semi-bootlit company, Mia. Uh, I really enjoyed this one, actually. It, it's n- it doesn't hold a candle to Herzog's, but as a strange late-period Kinski film with uh, similar elements to it, yeah, it, it works. Um, Christopher Plummer's in it. Donald Pleasance is in it. Uh, Elvira Dre. I mean, these are people that are in a lot of uh, Euro horror films at the time. And actually, just for laughs, there's two people in there. One of them's named Maria Kamani Quasimodo. So Quasimodo's in the fucking thing. And La Chunga is the woman, woman at Gypsy Camp. That's actually how she credits herself, La Chunga. Uh, so I guess it was some like Gypsy Huckster or something. That's the name she went by. Uh, but the film actually is interesting. Uh, it feels very much akin to what he would do around the same time for Paganini. Uh, with a little less sex and a little bit more semi-gothic horror. Uh, and it's definitely another one of these semi-romantic, you know, gothic tragedy, vampire-type films. Uh, but I really liked it. I thought it was pretty good. And yes, it's not Herzog's, but it's not trying to be an art film either. It's trying to be, you know, a cheesy vampire film, more or less. And in that respect, I thought it really worked pretty well. So is there anything you want to say on that one? Yeah, yeah, it's actually a lot, uh, but I'll try to be quick. Um, well, he really wanted to work on this because he had the idea, what if Nosferatu from the Herzog film was reborn? And so, okay, but he's reborn with this great flowing mane of hair. You know, it's really cool looking. He looks yep. really good in this. He, he does. Yep. He's lit well. Uh, legend has he's uncredited with uh, directing some of it. So is Lucio Cozy. Cozy, Luigi yep. Cozy. Um, which is like, huh? But anyway. And Mario Cagnino, who got canned. <laughs> yeah. Mar- so Mario three other directors. So, yeah, there's like five people working on this picture. Um, it's almost the entire picture is blue. Which which I yeah. like. It's very blue moon, blue yep. moonish, blue blue, and uh, there's some great shots. And Christopher Plummer is an interesting Van Helsing, man, you know, stand-in. You know, mm-hmm. uh, Donald Pleasance is in here briefly. Uh, yes, doing his usual twitchy self. <laughs> there is, though. You mentioned the 
not as much sex as something else, but there's a lot of diaphanous gowns and and oh yeah, full that's definitely women sexy. in this movie. Yeah, it's sexy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. Not not like Paganini, which a movie right. did direct. That one he directed, and he put in his, which I believe was his final, if not wife, then definitely his squeeze, uh, Debra Capriolio, who also was in Paprika for Tinto Brass. Gorgeous fucking girl. The name Debra Kinski, which is interesting. Yeah, gorgeous fucking girl, and I know you're happy because she has a big, can, big set of cans, uh, but she really is a very gorgeous girl, nice body, uh, very pretty. And uh, I understand that Brass picked her out, like her, he had to go with with their mother because she was like at a certain age, and the mother's like, yeah, sure, go ahead, whatever. <laughs> uh, so here she's with Kinski, and you know there is once again he's trying to do the romance angle, but it's a confused film. Uh, Nikolai, his son. Is in this as well. Um, Dahlia DeLazario, Edward Grimaldi, you might recognize some of those names from various Italian horrors of the period. It's ostensibly a biography of Niccolo Paganini, the uh, violinist who composed some symphonies, which are really just showpieces for the violin. He was kind of the Franz Liszt of his era, you know, romantic uh, composer who wasn't really a composer worth a shit. He was more of a performer, uh, and his stuff that is written is considered like uh, like Zerny. You know, if you're gonna pick up the piano, you gotta learn Liszt and Zerny because in Rachmaninoff, because these are the most demanding things on the instrument. You know. It's really going to test your skills. Paganini was the same thing for the violin. And a lot of guitarists, you know, like Ingve and stuff like that, or Paul Gilbert from Racer X, they will throw in bits of Paganini or pieces of Paganini in their guitar playing uh, just to show off, like, hey, look how you know, neoclassical and fast and flashy I am. That's what he was. And like Kinski, see, Kinski saw the reason he wanted to do this, he saw himself in the story of Paganini, because Paganini was supposedly, and if you've seen you know, pictures and drawings of him, he actually kind of was. Uh, hideously ugly, and yet because of his talent, uh, people thought he was possessed by the devil, because uh, that's what people did in those days. And he really got a lot of action. The women were crazy for Nicola Paganini. I mean, just throwing themselves at him. Uh, and this is a noted fact. You know, look it up in history. Uh, despite the way he looked, just because he was a super talented musician, uh, at least he was really good on his instrument and make it really go fast. Um, you know, the quality of his comp- composition, that's another story, but he was a really good player. And Kinski saw a lot of that in himself because he was also kind of, you know, trollish, I guess. Uh, and yet his magnetism, his genius uh, still came out and, you know, brought women to him and gave him what he wanted. Uh, so he said, oh, look, this is a story I've got to do, even though he was getting rather sick at the time. And I understand the production was interrupted a couple of times. He'd been working on it for several, I think several years on and off. Uh, he kept trying to, you know, running out of budget, you know, a way this film isn't good enough, taking it away from various directors, redoing stuff, re-editing. Uh, even the version that was eventually released, uh, which I think was also Mia, comes in a couple of different edits. Uh, you know, there's, there's different versions of this in different quality. Uh, and what's nice about it for people like us is that there's a whole hell of a lot of TNA in this. I mean, there's a lot, a lot of sex in this damn film. And uh, once again, Capriolio just has no shame. So, <laughs> uh, But as a film, it's very disjointed and in a lot of ways disappointing as a final statement. I know why he did it. 
but it doesn't quite gel. It, it was never edited to his satisfaction, and it's kind of a mess in the end. Uh, an enjoyable mess. Uh, a a potential genius mess, kind of like a lot of Orson Welles films, but not that good, uh, where you can see – or Franco. You can see the, these hints and sparks of genius, what it could have been, and yet altogether it's never really – it never gels. So go ahead. Your turn. Well, uh, it's, it's a screw is a huge problem. Actually, no, they're. It's hard to say. I I think both these pictures really affected him, which is interesting. The man who nothing affects. It's my own conjecture. I think both these movies affected him, which led to his death two years later in '91, um, because they were. Dream projects for him, especially Paganini. Yes, and I think you know. Well, the thing of Paganini is, I've never seen a good-looking print of this. I've seen so many over the years; it's never looked good. And yeah. I even saw one years ago. This is on the green market trading circuit, where I could swear there was footage bordering on hardcore. And I think that was yes. the problem. I think Klaus was trying to make whatever he wanted to do. If he wanted right. to have hardcore sex with his girlfriend in this movie, and I can't, now, don't quote me, folks, I don't think it may have been with Deborah Caprio Glio or another actress, but there was definitely something that was bordering on it, if not downright hard. Yeah, um, I was hinting at that. And I think that was the problem, too, with the producers. Like, what are you doing? We can't make money on this. You know, hey, that's what the producer's role is. They give somebody money to make a movie, and it's a period piece, so it's going to cost them money. Hey, you got to get their money back. <laughs> so they're probably yep. looking at all this footage going, what are we going to do with this? And I suppose that's, a, that's at the point where there are several different versions of this. None of them look quite good, probably because... I don't. Well, he was on the screen most of the time, so he's obviously not his own cinematographer. But you know, probably the DP was frightened of him. I don't yes. know what this madman wants. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Very true. So it's uh, it was his last movie, the last yes. movie that he made. Um, it did not come out until after he died. Yeah, he never did a final edit on it. It was still like you know, partially finished in the archives. Yeah, and I think maybe this the, the vampires in Venice. The same might have been true with that. I don't think that. Yes, it was. Light of day. Um, so he died in California. Uh, he had a a beach house. Um, Lagunitis which is sort of like uh, where the waves come and crash against one of those kind of restful places. And he was only 65. And yep. he looked much older. True. Uh, so we, the, you know, there's Klaus Kinski in uh, 2 hours and 12 minutes. Uh, the length <laughs> of the new Star Wars feature, probably. Um, yeah, there you go. But it's I, more fun. I, I, <laughs> Yeah, get more yeah. entertainment value here. <laughs> we 
we we skipped over a few titles, but not too many. I think you all got the gist of the various. And a lot of the ones we skipped over, we've covered in previous shows. So just go back and check out the shows that they're relevant to it. You know, the German creamy Edgar Wallace show, or you know, when we talk about the spaghetti Russians, when we talk about the Euro sleeves, or you know, whatever the, the Franco shows, yeah. they're, they're there. So. Um, but yes, once again, Klaus Kinski, love him to death, and he is dead. <laughs> Cheers to Klaus, a toast to him. Uh, and you know, there were other things that happened that we don't need to address. I know everybody's like wondering when we were going to touch on certain things that may or may not have happened, and that's oh you know, yeah, yeah. Well, that's not our yeah. role to talk that's about our, that stuff. Exactly. Even though I am the maven of these, I yeah, will but that's not too far. Discuss the things this evening. Yeah, exactly. It's a little too far. So, anyway, yeah, well, uh, not, so not just the one person, but other rumor type things, and and you know, and, and since isn't that show? Um, oh, but we should mention, we should mention before we go off here, Klaus did write about all his wonderful exploits yeah, in this autobiography, in a wonderful book. Now, I think nowadays it's the version that you had posted earlier with Kinski Uncut, which is very, very cut. Uh, because the book agency pulled it off the shelves because he was getting sued and all kinds of crap was going on. But the original uh, title was? All I Need is Love, and I have the original. It's a wonderful book. <laughs> I have it somewhere, too. Yeah. Yes. Uh, now, the the image I posted today was just off of Facebook just to, like, yeah. where I found it. But, yeah, I mean, it's... I it's an entertaining in all the wrong ways sort of book. It's not as exciting as I had hoped, uh, but nonetheless, because you're, you're thinking, oh, wow, this is going to be really sleazy and whatever and crazy. And it's like, okay, well, I could see why they wanted to assume. I could see why they had to pull it and you know, the company had to pull it and reissue it and edit it. But, you know, it's just, okay, well, it's Klaus's autobiography. And, you know, some say some parts were embellished. I don't know. Klaus is crazy. Who the hell knows? This might have been real. Uh, so it's well, definitely worth it. You know. You know, and, and some things like, well, she's dead, so we could say Marlena Dietrich, you know, and, and Klaus said that the two of them had conjugal bliss or whatever, you know, uh, to put it kindly. And other <laughs> other famous people he name checked. Well, oh yeah, why would you why would you lie about that? That's the thing. I don't think I don't exactly. think these things are fabricated. I don't know where they so, got that from, but you hear that a lot. They feel, like, oh yes, he made it up, and you know, I think Herzog said that. Oh yes, he helped me make it up. I, I uh, worked on the book with him. Bullshit. <laughs> yeah, if you saw my best fiends, they were like at loggerheads half the time. There's no way they worked together on anything. Oh yeah. Other than the before, right? And before we go, um, my best fiend, which is usually packaged with the, some of the Herzog Kinski movie uh, DVDs. Oh great, movies. you got to watch that. It's a it's a documentary on their togetherness as well as uh <laughs> Herzog does does um uh, does acknowledge all the work that, that Klaus had did with other people, but it's pretty much uh them. And there are clips from great things like we mentioned briefly at the outset. Um Klaus would occasionally do these tours. He would do these theatrical one-man shows, and one yes. of them, uh, well, several of them actually, I think, were religious-based, and one of them was like <sighs> him screaming that he was Jesus Christ to the audience, and he would well, he would bait yeah, the audience. I don't like think Jim he saw he was Jesus Christ, or he he believed he was Jesus Christ. I think that was the role <laughs> in his one-man show. But what happened was. 
he got a very antagonistic audience. And this is this right. is apparently saved for the rest of our life so we could all watch this. So some people start antagonizing antagonizing him, including some, some young men. And so Klaus loses his mind and then takes on the role of Jesus attacking them because they're they're saying, well, he's you know he's oh it's crazy. I can't even describe to you. Oh, so there's a lot this. of them. If you look on the Kinski Paganini disc that Miao put out, you got a thing at the end, Kinski at Khan, where he's there with Capri, uh, Capriolio freaking out at the reporters. And then there's something on YouTube somewhere where he's talking to a German interviewer in the park and freaking out on her and scaring the death out of her. And then there is David Schmoller with some behind-the-scenes footage from Crawl Space showing Klaus yeah. freaking out. And, of course, My Best Fiend is Full of this stuff, and you know, Klaus choking Herzog and throwing fits and whatever else. It's hilarious stuff. The guy was schizophrenic. There's no two ways about it. It's just that well, he was bordering on genius as well as madness, and he had a lot of talent I, and charisma. My, my, so. my favorite part in my best scene is when the uh, the crew decide that maybe they'll kill Klaus. <laughs> yes. Yeah. They actually did. They, they're actually sitting there. Then they like, okay, they're throwing lots. Oh, should we do it? Should we take him out? Okay. And then we're going to put a hit on Klaus. And I think Herzog yeah. said, okay, I changed it last minute. Like, oh, well, maybe I better not. Because <laughs> yeah. they'll do it. Yeah. yeah. They were ready to do it. They, they actually had the, the extras, the locals. We're going to kill Klaus for him. Uh, <laughs> And there's other stories where he got booted out of hotels. I, I read it recently. Uh, I think Maria Rome was saying it you on know, one of the uh, the things he did with Harry Allen Towers, where uh, they were in some place like Mallorca, and there was only like three hotels while they were filming. And Klaus got booted out of one after the other, and Harry had to go pay extra money and schmooze the last hotel owner to let Klaus stay there a couple extra days. Otherwise, he would have been on the street. <laughs> he would have yeah. been gone from the production. Uh, the guy's a piece of work and loads of fun. There's lots of stories out there. Dig them up. Uh, we've given you some sources. It's definitely worth looking into. Uh, so next week, uh, in addition to the conclusion of our Bond show, which should appear mysteriously sometime during the week, uh, we will be talking about Eddie Constantine, a Russian pole cabaret singer and contemporary and collaborator of EFP Off. Eddie Constantine made his fame in the Bohemian Left Bank of Paris. Versus a proto Serge Gainsbourg Chanteur, but more famously as the unlikely star of a long running series of generally hard boiled neo noir, but strangely just as often self mocking and comedically oriented crime pictures. Much beloved, often imitated but never paralleled, Constantine would appear in films by the likes of Jean Luc Godard and Jesus Franco, appearing contemporaneous and parallel series as long running detective novel stand by Nick Carter in his own Let Me Caution, as well as any number of similarly minded one off roles to which he brought simultaneous good humor, a hard luck tough guy noir ethos, likability, and gravitas. So join us next week as we celebrate one of the greats of French cinema, the inimitable Eddie Constantine. Watch out, baby. It's Eddie Constantine. So, uh,. That's basically it. Anything else you want to say before we close out? No, thank you all for listening. We'll see you next week. All right. Double shows next week, so stay tuned. (laughs) (laughs) No, thanks for listening tonight. Hope you enjoyed our little dissertation on Klaus Kinski. Next week, stay tuned for Eddie Constantine and the conclusion of our Bond discussion. Uh, Those of you who would like to follow us, do that at weirdscenes1.wordpress.com or at Twitter at WeirdScene1 or Facebook.com forward slash WeirdScene1. WeirdScene is at the Goldmine, but you can find the online network on Blockbook Radio.
was made with 100% Arabica beans, yet something was missing. Fear not, in the distance, a sausage McMuffin with egg rides toward the sunrise in quest for breakfast. The perfect pair met at McDonald's, and mornings were happy forever after. Right now, get a $1 small coffee and a $2 sausage McMuffin with egg from the $1, 2, $3 menu. Prices and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer or combo meal.